Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Tuesday, the 2nd of August, year of our Lord, 2022. Day 872 of the emergency. And today we have a little bit of a media emergency that is being hyped to uh, keep us distracted from many other things. And that's Pelosi's plane flight. Uh, we'll give you an update on that. It's kind of like watching Santa Claus, uh, you know, go around <laughs> on Christmas Eve from NORAD reports, right? Uh, except this is uh, the Wicked Witch of the West. And, uh, what, you know, is it going to be uh, her ego or President Xi's ego that's going to provoke us into uh, World War III? We'll talk about that and uh, the New World Orders as well. When we return, stay with us. We'll be right back. And again, the best we can find is that about 40 minutes ago, the latest news was that Pelosi's plane seems to be headed toward uh, Taiwan, but taking a circuitous route uh, to try to avoid a confrontation with the uh, Chinese who have been threatening to shoot her plane down. And uh, we don't have any more details than that. They're trying to spot the contrails coming out of her broom, uh, but they... <laughs> I'm not sure that's her yet. And so uh, we, we've seen all kinds of saber rattling, all kinds of brinksmanship that is happening. Uh, China says to Pelosi, you will perish over Taiwan. The position of the Chinese government and people on the Taiwan question is consistent and resolutely safeguarding China's national sovereignty and territorial integrity, uh, said uh, Xi Jinping to Biden 
He said, public opinion cannot be defined. Those who play with fire will perish by it. Uh, he, by the way, is the, um, the voice of uh, 1.4 billion Chinese people. He is their public opinion. <laughs> because his opinion is the only one that you're going to express publicly. How like our own country, isn't it? We have followed them as the uh, beta test site for all this. She's dire-sounding warning issued in connection with reports that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to go to Taiwan suggests either that Xi Jinping perceives Biden to be so weak that he can push him around <laughs> or that China's internal problems are so severe that the Communist Party must create an external crisis to distract the Chinese people. Yeah, that's what a lot of people are saying. Why is this, why are they making an issue out of this? And uh, why is Pelosi making an issue out of it as well? For about a decade, Chinese leaders have believed the U.S. has been in terminal decline, and Biden has confirmed this view. <laughs> yes, uh, I don't see how anybody could uh, uh, see the federal government led by that guy as um, uh, even being able to uh, find its way to uh, Taiwan. <laughs> I mean, she just may be meandering around if she's got a pilot uh, like uh, Biden. Anyway, um, at the same time, Xi's threat could be the result of his regime insecurity as well. He needs an external crisis so the Chinese people won't think too much about the internal crises, such as his dictatorial zero-COVID policy, where he is locking people down left and right. Now, millions of people locked down because you had four people test positive, not sick, but tested positive. And we've been saying this for a long time. Uh, the fact that it's going to be the tests. The tests will be the key for them to lock down society. The key for them to come after political dissidents. Um, yeah, you know, uh, you just tested positive. Well, I, I'm not sick. I'm fine. Uh, no, I think you are sick. I've got a test right here that says that you're positive, And I'm positive that you've got to be put into a prison camp. Uh, this is the way he is running his society, and they are modeling and testing that for the rest of the world. Uh, that's what China has been for a very long time, a beta test site for this globalist tyranny. So Pelosi uh, is going to visit Taiwan, say the local media, uh, despite the warnings from China. Uh, she wants to uh, make this, uh, again, as I've said, part of her legacy, You know, bragging about it in, uh, in the future. She'll brag about how... Uh, just like Hillary took sniper fire and Brian Williams' helicopter was fired upon and all these other things that never happened. Could Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan spark a war between China and the U.S., writes RT. Now, Russia today uh, looks at, um, at the uh, one China policy and they make the case that the U.S. has broken the treaty with China just like they broke the treaty with NATO, broke the treaty with uh, Russia. They say the U.S. and China established full diplomatic relations in the 1970s as Washington switched its diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing, from uh, Taiwan to uh, Beijing. Washington committed itself to the One China Policy. Uh, it was Kissinger's presidency, which stipulates that there is only one China and Taiwan is a part of it. However, the U.S. is concurrently strengthening Taiwan's ability to act as an independent state by providing weapons. Thus, for the past four decades, 
Peace between the U.S. and China has been based on strategic ambiguity over the status of Taiwan. And it has been a major obsession with the mainland Chinese communists. As I pointed out in the past, friends of ours who've adopted uh, twice from China, uh, she is Chinese, she's actually uh, Taiwanese. And uh, the first time they adopted from China, as part of their bios, uh, she put down that her family was Taiwanese and said, ooh, ooh, take that out. Uh, they will blackball that adoption if you put down that you are Taiwanese. They seek to have it removed from maps and the rest of the uh, of this. It is an obsession with them. In the past, the U.S. was reckless in managing one China policy, says RT. But in recent years, Washington has begun to deliberately hollow out the policy. The rise of Beijing threatens the U.S. security strategy based on global primacy. And there is no willingness in Washington to accommodate a multipolar order. Uh, time appears to be on China's side as its influence in the region will only increase. In contrast, America's power is declining, which creates incentives for changing its posture towards China and the Taiwan issue. Now, that's RT's commentary. Uh, U.S. military cooperation, they go on, with uh, Taiwan has become more frequent and overt, and Washington has pushed for expanded Taiwanese representation in the international system. Well, I just have to say that regardless of whatever the, uh, the treaties were, uh, I support people having uh, a um, whatever form of government they wish. And so when you looked at Ukraine breaking from Russia, even though they had been in Russia longer than um, the U.S. has existed independently, uh, I said, well, that's fine. If the Ukraine people want to leave, of course, there was much more to it than that. But if that were the case, fine, let them leave. But at the same time, as, the, as Crimea, as Ukraine was leaving Russia, and people were saying, well, yeah, they, get it. They, they should be able to have their own self-determination. When Crimea wanted to leave Ukraine and stay with Russia, and they said, oh, no, you can't do that. See, none of these people believe in self-determination. The U.S. government doesn't believe in it. China doesn't believe in it. And so they use these different situations to um, fight each other and to uh, escalate their military conflicts. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is now tipped to make a visit to Taiwan this week, the first trip by an official of her rank in decades. Uh, thank you very much, Patrick S. Thank you for the tip. Nancy Pelosi is the worst Archduke Ferdinand in history. That's right. I called her the arched eyebrows. We, 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 supposedly, according to the history books, we went to uh, World War I over the Archduke, and now we may go to World War Three over the arched eyebrows, Pelosi. Uh <laughs> To save face. And she's been trying to save face for a long time. That's how her eyebrows got so high. Uh, she <laughs> saved so much face, she's got it in the back of her head. Uh, how should Beijing interpret and respond to this action? Is Pelosi merely a rogue element in the U.S.? Grandstanding to draw attention away from her personal corruption scandals? Or is this part of a wider U.S. salami tactics aimed at gradually severing Taiwan from China? I don't think the goal of the U.S. is to sever Taiwan from China. I think the goal of the U.S. is to start World War III, uh, however they can do it, and with as many people as they can. Uh, Pelosi could pull a Taiwan trick, says the Chinese state media. Maybe this will be the way that they avoid a direct confrontation. 
we would have shot her down, but she did a sneaky thing. She came in through the back entrance to uh, <laughs> to Taiwan. Uh, came in the back door. And that appears to be what she is doing, at least according to the press. They said it is still possible that Pelosi wants to make a risky, dangerous move by trying to land at a Taiwan airport with an emergency excuse, like aircraft fault or refueling. The Chinese military patrols, radar detections, and relevant drills should be kept at high alert in coming days, said the paper. However, the Global Times, which is the official uh, Chinese uh, propaganda outlet, uh, pointed out that if Pelosi really has emergency problems, the People's Liberation Army aircraft can provide protection to her plane and let her land at airports in China's Sansha City, Hainan Province in the South China Sea or other airports in the Chinese mainland, which would provide professional services and assistance. Make no mistake about it. The Chinese are imperialistic. Why is it that, you know, when you are doing brinksmanship with World War III, why is the liberal press and the Democrats not pointing out, and all the leftists, why are they not pointing out how China has become a fascist authoritarian state like the Nazis? I mean, they're hyper-nationalists hyper-nationalists, just like the Nazis. And just like the Nazis, they want to, uh, they say there's uh, other territory that rightfully belongs to them, and they need to have Lebensraum, right? they got to have some breathing room. I, I, you know, I need to have, I want Hong Kong back. I want Taiwan back and the rest of this. And why are they not talking about their attempts to uh, set them up as a uh, colonial power to take over entire areas like the South China Sea, which is no more China's sea than the Gulf of Mexico belongs to Mexico. Uh, they have set up artificial islands, the Spratly Islands, right off the coast of the Philippines. They're making them military bases to threaten the Philippines. I mean, they're very expansive, very aggressive. Uh, this uh, simply is not about the... Uh, Treaty 50 years ago that uh, they negotiated, that um, uh, it was negotiated with Kissinger and Nixon and the uh, China opening. It's not about that at all. It's about China's behavior. China saying, well, you can't go through here, you can't go to the Philippines because we've now claimed that we own the South China Sea. And so, in that kind of regard, uh, the U.S. Navy, in order to keep the international waters international, goes through those areas to keep them open. And that's not a provocation. The provocation is on the Chinese side. Nevertheless, I do believe that the Pentagon, this current Pentagon, wants to have World War III. Uh, I agree with Joel Scalzo. I need to get him back on. Uh, we need to uh, contact Joel and uh, get him back on. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back, we're going to talk about the Trump revolution. Uh, and I'm not talking about January the 6th. I'm not talking about the insurrection. I'm talking about the lockdown and the vaccines. I'm talking about the shots sent around the world. We're going to come back and talk about the vaccine. Stay with us. We'll be right back. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing. And the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Elvis. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And the sweet sounds of Motown. Find them on the Oldies channel at APSradio.com. All right. Uh, as we've talked about the new Zogby poll, it turns out there's quite a few polls that have come out looking at how many people have been diagnosed with a new condition, for example. That's the Zogby poll commissioned by the Children's Health Defense Fund. 15% of Americans polled by Zogby said they've now been diagnosed with a new health condition that they didn't have before after they got the COVID vaccine. You have another poll that shows 10% of Americans regret having taken the vaccine. And yet Trump, still proud of this, so proud of it, and so tone deaf, so disregarding of what he has unleashed upon the world with his warp speed program, put the vaccine out without testing it, and he can't stop from bragging about it. They've even told him, stop saying Talking about your vaccine. He goes, well, I can't say the word, but I really love that thing I made, you know. So uh, five polls now, all done by different independent polling organizations, including the one by Zogby, are giving us the same kinds of information. Uh, Steve Kirsch put them together, and then he did his own poll on a, an establishment, a left-wing site uh, called... Um, uh, that does uh, next door. It's about uh, neighborhoods and things like that, selling local stuff. And boy, they don't like that. So it stayed up for a short period of time and then they took it down and um, stayed up about a day. Uh, they don't like that. He says, my friends at uh, Children's Health Defense had Zogby do a poll, found that uh, 15% had a new condition. 10% of Americans regret taking the vaccine. He goes, so think about it. 
That's about 22 million very unhappy customers in just America alone. And yet this is the shot, not heard around the world, but this is a shot that was sent around the world. This vaccine was the kickoff of a revolution, just like the American Revolution was called the shot heard around the world because it kicked off one revolution after the other around the world. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But nevertheless, uh, it inspired many people to uh, move towards self-governance. And yet, what was the point of this shot, this Trump shot that was sent around the world? It was a kickoff of a major depopulation exercise, a mass killing, a mass sterilization of humanity. And at the epicenter of it was the man that is still worshipped by the conservatives, the man that the conservatives would not oppose because he's one of us. He's a blue-collar billionaire from Davos and the Epstein cult and the rest of this stuff. So now you got 22 very unhappy customers just in America alone. And so he said, so what do we do about that? Well, we force people. We force kids. We force workers. We force the military to take the jab through mandates and coercion. That's what we do. That's the best way to get a higher adoption of a very defective product. The very fact that they're doing this shows the tactics and the mindset of this world government that is being rolled out with the United Nations and Davos. Uh, so uh, the CDC lied to us. They said the events were rare, but they're not rare. We have 10% buyer's remorse. That's not rare at all. Of the people vaccinated, 15% had problems. Of those 15% with problems, 21% had blood clots. 19% had heart attacks. 18% had liver damage. 17% had clots in their legs or lungs. 15% had strokes. Okay, so if 15% of the people had problems, he just takes the first one. He goes, let's just you know, do the math here. You got 15% of the people have problems. 21% of those are blood clots. So what is 21% of 15%? Well, that's one out of every 32 people which, who took the vaccine got clots, is what he's saying. Does that sound like it's rare? One out of every 32 that took the vaccine got blood clots? That's not rare. That's a train wreck, he said. The CDC lied. People died. And then he did another poll. Like I said, he put it on uh, next door. He says they ban anything that is anti-vaccine. And the site is populated primarily with pro-vaccine people. None of these people, he said, are followers. They don't know who he is. Most of them, he said, if they do know who he is, despise him for being anti-vax. So he says, whenever I post there, I get hammered. And so he put up a, a, a poll. And this is the response of the poll. He asked uh, how many people died from COVID. How many people knew someone who died from COVID? And um, they said, and 2% said that. Uh, how many people knew someone, knew someone who died from the vaccine? 3% said that. Uh, how many people do you know seriously injured from the vaccine? 3%. And then there was a fourth option, which was, it's all good. None of the above. That was 92%. But think about the fact that on this site, he had uh, 6% of the people said they knew someone who had died or seriously injured from the vaccine. Uh, only 2% said 
said they knew somebody who had died from COVID. And then they deleted his post. And not only that, but he said, um, I had a, a comment from a Stanford professor, Paul Fisher. He commented on my poll and he, he said, uh, please take this down. You should not be talking about this. He said, he basically believes we shouldn't ask such questions because otherwise people might realize that they've been lied to. Yeah, it's bad for morale, you know, to talk to people about vaccines. We don't want them to lose trust in vaccines. We don't want them to lose trust in Fauci or the government or Trump or Biden or whoever it is that they trust. And um, so anyway, he uh, said he responded to him. He said, are you willing to discuss this? Because the same type of polling was done nationwide by University of California, San Francisco professor uh, Prasad. He said, you want to talk about that? <laughs> no, he doesn't want to talk about that. Uh, so uh, when we look at what is happening, let me just play for you. And we have um, talked about this airline captain before, but I want you to hear it from his own lips as he talks about his experience with the vaccine. Uh, standing in a hospital gown in the hospital and on a split screen on the left side is a picture of him when he was an airline captain before he was coerced into taking the vaccine. My name is Bob Snow. I'm a captain. been a captain for a number of years. My total service with the company is over 31 years. On November 7th, I was mandated to receive a vaccine. Quite literally, I was told if I did not receive the vaccination, I would be fired. This was from our director of flight. So, under duress, I received the vaccine. Uh, now, just a few days ago, after landing in Dallas, six minutes after we landed, I passed out. Uh, I coded. I required three shocks. I need to be intubated. I'm now in the ICU in Dallas. This is what the vaccine has done for me. I will probably never fly again uh, based upon the criteria that the FAA establishes for pilots. I was hoping to teach my daughter to fly. She wants to be a pilot. That will probably never happen. All courtesy of the vaccine. This is unacceptable and I am one of the victims. You can see that this is the actual result of the vaccine for some of us. Mandatory, no questions asked, get the shot or you're fired. This is not the American way. Yeah, but, uh, you know, don't call it the Trump shot. Uh, people get so angry with me when I call it the Trump shot. But Trump wants the credit. Mark Levin was whining in January of uh, 2021 when Biden was talking about it. He goes, don't let him take credit for it. It's Donald Trump's vaccine. Give him the credit. It's like, I will. I will. I'm right there on, on that one issue. I agree with Mark Levin. Trump should get the credit. I see that. On Breitbart, I see that over and over again. People demanding that Trump get the credit. Let's give him the credit for this. You did it, Donald. You did it to your people. You did it to all of us. You did it to the world. History will remember you for that. More so than your other interesting attributes. Five facts to consider before you vaccinate your kids. This is from Children's Health Defense. Uh, Dr. Syed Hader sees patients every day who have suffered life-altering changes after the vaccine. Many had not connected their symptoms to the shot. 
She said everybody has blinders to vaccine injury. Patients think they drew the one in a million short straw. Why do they think that? Well, because we got liars like Fauci, who was given the uh, reins of government by President Trump and uh, the propaganda campaign that was run by the media that is funded by big pharmaceutical companies now and has been since the 90s, since the Ask Your Doctor commercials. I mean, the... I just, you know, people ask me, what do you think about Tucker? I don't watch Tucker. I mean, I don't hate Tucker. He says some good things, but I don't trust him because he works for Fox. He takes blood money. Fox is pushing this vaccine. If Tucker wants to come out and say what I'm saying about the vaccine, they would fire him. He could run his own media operation. He doesn't need Fox. He could start his own network and he could, you know, not uh, mislead people about that kind of stuff. Uh, but they've been pushing this vaccine from the very beginning, from the very beginning. You had uh, uh, a doctor, uh, I think it's Mark Siegel is his name, went down to Washington with Trump, and they're standing there six feet apart to do the interview to try to push this nonsense. While Trump was still president, talking about how good the vaccine was going to be, how everybody needed to stay locked down, all the rest of this stuff. And you could see how uncomfortable Tucker was being told that he had to throw to that. I know what he was going through. I've been through that kind of stuff. But it comes to time when you have to stand up to the organization that's lying to people uh, for their money. Uh, of course, he can wind up uh, <laughs> doing the broadcast out of his garage. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, everybody thinks they drew the one in a million short straw because they keep you know this messaging going out that it's rare. It's rare. And they ignore it. And so it's like, well, I don't hear anybody this happening to anybody else. That's why uh, what Senator Ron Johnson did was so important. But that's how the government works. It makes you think that you're alone. It actually makes you alone. And it makes you think that you're an outlier. So here's the five things that you need to think about if you're thinking about vaccinating a child or if you know somebody that is thinking about it. This is what you need to point out to them. For children, all through this whole thing, they never bothered to manipulate the statistics. They show that there is essentially no risk for children. We now know, because we've had documents released, that Pfizer and the FDA, this is number two, uh, they tried to cover these things up for 75 years. Why? Why? Uh, this was as important for them to keep concealed as the documents about the Kennedy assassination. So why would they do that? Uh, well, because we know now that the uh, oversight has failed. We know that uh, the FDA and Pfizer conspired together to create fraud. And then they conspired together to cover it up. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And to try to keep it hidden for 75 years. Dr. Paul Offit. One of the most prominent vaccine advocates before all this stuff started has not been happy with uh, what's been going on with the mRNA vaccines. Dr. Paul Offit, a prominent member of the FDA's advisory committee who voted against approval, said bluntly that the FDA review suggested, quote, the fix was in a little bit. In other words, it was a fix. He says, "Um, I felt like we were being led here with a critical lack of information. He said that in an interview with Dr. Zubin Damania on a YouTube show. Well, I'm surprised that YouTube hasn't shut them down. Uh, They would shut me down if I uh, had anything like that said. He said, it seems like the burden of proof for the FDA seems to be going down and down and down, Damania suggested. And Offit agreed and said, exactly. They're using bogus data on adults on efficacy and transferring it now over to children, said an immunology expert, James Lyons-Weiler, a biomedical research scientist who was reported on the vaccines. He said, imagine if we did that for cancer treatments and tested only adults and not children. In other words, the tests and the test data that they have for the adults is bogus. And then they're using that for the kids and say, well, we don't need to run any separate tests for kids. Really? That's been one of my arguments against uh, fluoridating the water. Number one, Since when do you take any kind of medication and just dump it in the water supply? Assuming that it was safe and effective, it's safe and effective for a particular dose. You can't control the dose if you dump it in the water supply. Some people are going to get too much, which makes it unsafe. Some people are not going to get enough, which makes it ineffective. So what's this about dumping fluoride in the water supply? Well, they take the same approach with this. We've, We've tested this for adults. We don't need to test it for kids. The risk is greater than the benefit. That's number three to understand. We have uh, some examples of that. Uh, The Pfizer vaccine's effectiveness declined rapidly for children, particularly those 5 to 11 years old, in a study by New York State officials. They said it was low protection one month after two doses. And again, this is just looking at their new benchmark of efficacy. They don't run the phase 2, phase 3 tests anymore. They just look at antibody presence as if that mattered, and it doesn't. But even by their own failed benchmark, they can't make the case that it works. Even the CDC owned up in the Journal of the American Medical Association that protection for children 5 to 15 was, quote, modest and decreased rapidly, unquote. Finally, a new Singapore study addressed further uh, found efficacy of two doses was only 48% after just one to two weeks, after dual vaccination, and it declined to 25.6% at two months, meaning that only one in four infections was avoided. Four, you have um, the, uh, the safety of this is ignored. In February, the Archive of Pathology reported on two teenage boys who died suddenly and unexpectedly in their sleep without resuscitation, quote-unquote. Three and four days 
after their second Pfizer vaccines. Neither boy complained of fever, chest pain, palpitations, or dyspnea, labored breathing. Uh, two physicians wrote, warning of the atypical nature of the heart inflammation that called myocarditis that killed these boys. That's now become uh, a household word, which I would say you should add that when you're talking to somebody. Have you noticed um, myocarditis and pericarditis have become a household word? How did that happen if it's a rare problem? Lastly, government is failing to monitor the harm. For example, uh, just a selection from openbears.com, which is an easier to access. This is another thing to give people. Have them go to openvares.com as opposed to uh, the CDC's VAR site. It takes the same data, but it puts it in a format that is designed to help you see it instead of trying to hide it from you. In the same way that Google has become a search engine designed to hide things, uh, VAERS has become a uh, database of vaccine adverse events that is not designed to report them, but designed to hide them. A Georgia boy, 16, who suffered a headache and gastric upset over two days following a second dose, then he felt fine then was found dead uh, the following day in bed. A Texas girl, eight years old, suffered multi-system inflammatory disease 70 days post-vaccination with carditis in her heart, inflammation in her intestines, lungs, skin, and liver. Her belly distended and lungs filled with fluid. She went to the ICU and her heart stopped beating right there. A Wisconsin girl, 16, suffered heart failure and pulmonary embolism nine days after her second dose. She died two days later. A Colorado boy, 15, died of heart failure one day after his first dose. A Florida boy, seven, one-year-old, uh, suffered increased body temperature, seizure, and then deaths, death two days after his first dose. And finally, an Iowa girl, five years old, who had an unspecified complex medical history, they said, but she stayed overnight in the hospital as a precaution after the first dose. Two days later, she was found without a pulse and not breathing at home. Deaths like these are seldom reported in the popular press, not even to explore the question of potential vaccine harm. Instead, censorship and relentless pro-vaccine messaging suppress necessary information. And you know, when I look at this, you, you look at all of the attention given to trivial things, uh, trivial diseases even, things that are very, very rare. I mean, if this were rare, wouldn't it be worthy of a story? Oh, look at this. We have a very rare cause of death here. They love to focus on rare causes of death, except here. So whether it was common or whether it was rare, they don't want to talk about it. I mean, we have shark attacks. Shark attacks are far, far, far more rare, unbelievably more rare than people who have been killed with a Trump shot. But they'll go, you know, they'll talk all about every single shark attack. COVID vaccine critic Kim Iverson has now been forced out of um, the hill, fired, because, uh, first of all, uh, as it was a, um, a program where uh, she was a co-host, the program is called uh, Rising, and they would interview people, and the hill, being an establishment rag, had uh, set up, it scored an interview with Fauci because he's now come out of hiding again. And... Um, they did not have her conduct the interview. They banned her from the interview. And she has been a vaccine skeptic. 
And so on Monday, uh, she took to Twitter to voice displeasure over not hosting that morning's rising. Instead, frequent host Robbie Soav and Newsweek deputy opinion editor uh, also conducted a 20-minute interview with Fauci. And a fan of hers is wondering who at Rising thought that it was a good move not to have her host that segment. I mean, wouldn't you think that somebody who is skeptical of vaccines would be a good person to interview Fauci? Because you're going to have uh, you're going to have some controversial statements probably made, and you're going to get your uh, your program. The Hill is going to get worldwide news out of that. No, no, no. Let's keep it. Let's tamp it down. So she said, they said, who thought that was a good move to not have you interview Fauci? She said, good question. Uh, She later shared the Fauci clip again, and she said, I wanted to participate in the interview and then criticized her colleagues for, quote, not getting the answers we all deserve. Well, she's now gone. You see, when you have organizations like The Hill or Fox News, or InfoWars, and they have become captive to these agendas. They become propaganda outlets uh, pushing a globalist agenda. Well, you question that, and you get, first of all, pushed to the back, and if you complain about that, they fire you. Um, Inside the corrupt world of Alzheimer's science, this is an interesting story because um, it's from Christopher Bedford. What he does is he looks at science research about Alzheimer's. He said, you know, it's been 100 years since it was discovered by Dr. Alzheimer, who it's named after. And since then, it's become a big business. But he says, an international cabal of scientists who believe their own righteousness, scientific journals, conferences, grants that suppress dissent, tens of billions of dollars in taxpayer money, big pharma and venture capital money, decades of research, and precious little to show for it all. He said, I'm not describing COVID. I'm not describing global warming or any other highly politicized scientific debate, although he could be, right? What happened with Alzheimer is the same thing that is happening with climate change, with COVID, the rest of this stuff, because this is now what science has become. And that's the point of this article. Look at how this, how pervasive this is. He said, the implications for the rest of science policy and education are deep and troubling. He said, we all care about Alzheimer's like we care about cancer and heart disease and others that have touched us personally. Did you know, however, that despite being officially diagnosed over a century ago, despite all the grants, the institutes, and the money poured into it, despite Americans' personal interest in solving it, we haven't discovered a single cure? Zero. We don't even have any treatments for it. Well, why not? He said, to start with, uh, we might have been focused on the wrong thing. Ever since Dr. Alzheimer first identified the disease that now bears his name in 1922, we have taken an interest in the plaque deposits found in the brains of deceased patients. He said following research into the disease was slow to pick up, however, only gaining serious interest in the 1970s. Uh, When Congress established the National Institute on Aging, which is established, uh, attached to the National Institutes of Health, where Fauci has his vaccine uh, thing for infectious diseases. The main driver of these plaques was finally discovered in 1984, and it was identified as amyloid beta. The discovery was electric and quickly gained adherence. Three years later, in 1987, 
Stat News reports a new study further discovered mutations in a gene called APP that increases amyloid levels. So by 1991, Science Magazine reported many scientists consider the amyloid thesis as settled fact. And they included a 1991 study that found that although the brains of elderly Alzheimer's patients had amyloid plaque, so did brains of people the same age who died with no signs of dementia. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. But we're not going to be allowed to explore that, right? At the same time, the scientists began to wonder if amyloid was the, uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, it could be, uh, uh, well, I think, I, you know, it it's, um, could be amyloid, or I don't know. But anyway, we'll just call it amyloid. Uh, and forgive me if, uh, usually, if I see a word like that, if I'm not in a hurry, I'll take the time to look up to see how it is pronounced, but I didn't. Uh, they didn't look to see if that plaque was the cause of the disease or merely a sign of the damage that the uh, actual disease was doing to the brain, right? In other words, it's here. Is it there as an after effect of the disease or is it the cause of the disease? Its mere presence is associated with it, but we don't know that that's the cause of it. Is it the cause or the effect? Well, we don't know. The science, however, was settled and an alternative hypothesis would no longer be considered. In more than two dozen interviews, 2009 Stat News expose revealed, quote, scientists who fell outside the dogma recounted how for decades believers in the dominant hypothesis suppressed research on any alternative ideas. They influenced what studies got published in top journals, which scientists got funded, who got tenure, who got to have speaking slots at the reputation buffing scientific conferences. Straying outside the dogma would get you marked as a traitor, one prominent scientist explained, and it could cost the heretic published articles, prominent posts, grant money for research, speaking slots at prestigious conferences. We've seen this with HIV as well. Once Fauci had proclaimed that he had a <clears throat> PCR test that could find HIV, and he linked HIV to being the cause of AIDS, that was it. It was over. And anybody who challenged him on that was purged. Uh, same thing that we've seen now. They just didn't uh, force the entire world to get a vaccine. But as I've played for you many times, uh, in October 2019, that's exactly what Fauci and his co-conspirators were talking about. How do we get everybody in the world to take an untested flu shot? Well, we do it from the inside, we do it with disruption, and we do it iteratively, gradually. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, if you're outside the uh, dogma, you are a traitor. And you get removed. Even private investment in novel Alzheimer's research was tied up. Uh, how'd they do that? Well, before investing in a scientist's idea, venture capitalists would seek the input of other top Alzheimer's scientists who would dismiss any alternate hypotheses. So, you know, somebody's got an idea as to how they might treat this or some different, and they go to get funding. And so the venture capitalists will go around to all the anointed experts and say, does this sound like, oh, no, that's nonsense. We've already looked at that. We know what the cause of it is. And so you don't get any funding, no research. So it's shut down even in the private areas. Uh, Richard Williams, thank you very much for the tip. He said that last month, University College London published a decades-long study of the most extensive research ever conducted on SSRIs and found that there is zero scientific evidence to support they are effective. And there is zero evidence depression is caused by a, quote, chemical imbalance, quote, unquote. Yeah, that's true. But there is a lot of evidence that links uh, horrific events uh, with people who try to get off of the SSRIs because they are um, uh, not happy with the side effects. And so they stop taking the medication or they reduce it. And it, it is like um, the interview that I had a few years ago. Lady has a website, SSRI.net uh, or something. I can't remember the exact name of it, but we talked about it for quite some time. Went through a lot of different cases. She's got one case after the other where people have uh, modified their dosage for the SSRIs and then attempted to, uh, or actually did, uh, murder-suicide. Uh, one particular case that did not get uh, much public attention because nobody died from it. A young guy who was on SSRIs uh, came off of it, went to his school classroom with a rifle and alternately pointed it at the class and then at himself and the class and himself. Finally, they got it away from him. He had no recollection of it after he, uh, you know, had uh, detoxed from that. But the way she described it, as we were talking about it, it's, it's if you come off of it too quickly, it's kind of like, getting the bends. If you go down deep in water, every 33 feet you go down, you have another atmosphere pressure. And uh, so uh, if you stay, as you go down with that extra pressure, the nitrogen, you know, that horrible nitrogen that uh, Davos is trying to get out, get rid of, it's about 70% or so in the air. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know, that nitrogen starts dissolving in your bloodstream. And if you come up too quickly, then it bubbles out. It kind of, you know, like, like opening up a, a soda can. And it causes all kinds of physical damage in your body. It's called the bends. And what she was saying was, uh, and it's not just SSRIs. There's a lot of pharmaceuticals that you have to be very, very slow to come off of. But it's especially true with SSRI. And if with SSRI, if you come off of it too quickly, uh, that has been connected over and over again to mass murder and suicide or attempted mass murder and suicide in many cases. Uh, people not knowing even what they're doing. The 100-year anniversary of Alzheimer's discovery might have been the year for skeptics to have their say, pointing out that despite decades of research and money, there was still no cure. But that year, science reports a breathtaking nature paper entered into the breach and the study built on existing theories about the plaque but discovered what its author called 
the first substance ever identified in brain tissue and Alzheimer's research, has been shown to cause memory impairment. And that went off like a bomb, reinvigorating the dogma that had been showing signs of age after decades of failure. And over the next 15 years, the uh, 2006 study would be cited in more than 2,000 other scholarly works. Then in 2022, it would be exposed as seemingly fraudulent by a host of credible scientific investigators. Fraudulent as in literally using falsified images to make its case. The substance, it turns out, might not even exist, but the damage was done. That reminds me of the uh, case of Ernst Huckel, the guy that was Darwin's bulldog. He's a contemporary with Charles Darwin. He was a German scientist, and he was determined that uh, he was going to demonstrate the truth of Darwin's theory of man-to-molecules, or molecules-to-man evolution. And so he produced a series of drawings that he said were uh, drawings of the human baby in development at different stages. And he said, you look at this at the very beginning stage here, the baby looks like a fish. And then uh, later on, it looks like a more highly evolved animal. And isn't it amazing, as we follow the development of a human baby, it goes through all of the different stages of evolution. And they gave it a very impressive title. Ontology, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And I remember seeing, uh, what was the guy's name? Um, Carl Sagan on with Johnny Carson. And he would lugubriously say, yes, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. We know exactly. And it had already been debunked at that point in time. You know, when he's going on with Johnny Carson in the 1970s, spouting that stuff, it had already been debunked because people had gone back and had photographs of a developing baby at the various stages of life, and they looked nothing at all like the drawings from Ernst Haeckel. Ernst Haeckel fabricated those, made them up out of whole cloth, and it was exposed just like this fraud was exposed. But guess what? Nobody cared. <clears throat> they continued to put it in the. Um, <clears throat> they continued to put it in the uh, biology textbooks. They continued to put it in the high school textbooks. You still had the pop scientists like Carl Sagan going on Johnny Carson, talking about it all the time. Uh, always question science, as I have said over and over again. Real science is skepticism, and you should never take for granted any authority figure. As a matter of fact, Francis Bacon, who formulated the scientific method contrasted the scientific method with academia. In academia, you take whatever the grand poobah says, right? You trust the authority. You trust the consensus. But in the scientific method, you don't. You say, show me the data. If they want to hide the data, we're done. And that's why I was done 15 years ago uh, with uh, climate stuff. These people... Uh, making all these dire pronouncements, and they do everything in the world they can to try to hide the data from you. Things had shifted from a scientific inquiry to an almost religious belief system where people stopped being skeptical or even questioning. And this is an Alzheimer's. None of this means the people who have devoted their lives to researching Alzheimer's are some nefarious cult. They're just human beings, meaning that they are greedy, protective, 
prideful, prone to groupthink. As uh, one uh, CEO of uh, Immune Bio, Dr. Raymond Tessie, explained to Stat News, he said, Alzheimer's has egos, and it has superstars, and it has big personas, unlike anything I've seen elsewhere. I think we've seen it elsewhere. I think we've seen it in every one of these uh, scams. Uh, So admitting doubt, said uh, Stat News, let alone error, would not only be a blow to the ego, but a threat to one's livelihood. There were very big egos involved in the Alzheimer thing, and they could not stand to be wrong. And it was no longer science anymore. And so in this article, Christopher Bedford, Again, he's a senior editor at The Federalist. He says, in fields like global warming where dissenters or even skeptics are labeled deniers. He goes, just remember, it was just uh, last week that we had Al Gore comparing anybody that didn't believe uh, his narrative. We were compared to uh, the Uvalde, Texas police, whose inaction contributed to the murder of 19 school children and two teachers. Billions more dollars flow into this field of climate research than into Alzheimer's. In the name of global warming, organizations like the UN are joining powerful state actors across the planet in shaping policy and economics based on their cherry-picked research. He says favored research. I say cherry-picked because we've seen the Climate Gate emails. And I've been part of the group that sued to get the data after they'd published their conclusions and public policy had been crafted on it. And the data was done while they were on the public payroll in a public university on a public university computer. And they refused to give it up. And the courts supported them on that. So what about COVID science? Where you have even bigger celebrities, even more money. And they've admitted mistakes and even lies, and yet they move forward shamelessly. Behind the totem of settled science, quote-unquote, it's just that. We're human, and we have human weaknesses, just as we're behind the all sorts of authoritative veneers. In the end, these claims to power and hidden knowledge are just us, and all of our pride, greed, fear, and imperfection. Excellent op-ed piece by Christopher Bedford with The Federalist. And so what is the response to all this? Well, again, they double down and they purge anybody that does not agree with the narrative. And now we're seeing YouTube has now moved on to abortion. They've added that to their totem pole. They've got all these sacred images, these totems. Thou shalt not talk about climate change. Thou shalt not talk about the panic-demic. Thou shalt not talk about the vaccines or Fauci. You will not talk about the election. You will not talk about abortion. I'm sick of this, frankly. Uh, It tells me what I want to talk about. (laughs) Last week, social media giant YouTube declared it was taking action against misinformation regarding abortion, promising to crack down on content that they disagree with. And it's bad news for pro-life content creators since the World Health Organization, the WHO, And the CDC uh, do not think that a baby is a baby. So what's going to happen when YouTube starts censoring anybody that disagrees with them on that? Just remember, do you remember back, uh, it was January 31st of 2020. I mean, we'd not even gotten to the lockdown yet. 
right? That was March 13th of 2020. January the 31st of 2020, people were saying, well, you know, there's something weird going on with this Wuhan stuff. And you had Zero Hedge get suspended from Twitter. They said, we're going to kick you off permanently. Why? What was their crime? They had reported the LinkedIn profile of a scientist, a Chinese scientist who worked at the Wuhan lab, who said he was involved in uh, studying bats and coronaviruses. And he put that out publicly on his LinkedIn profile. They just pointed to it and they said, well, that's interesting. And Twitter thought it was interesting as well. And they shut it down, shut it down. And they were later vindicated and restored. But did Trump do anything about that? I mean, that's January 2020. That's about the same time that his big pharma CEO, Alex Azar, who was put at the head of HHS, declared his emergency. You know, he did that at the end of January, even before Trump in the middle of uh, March put out his emergency. And so just as Trump had been silent about all the other censorship that had been rampant even before August of 2018, when you had all the big tech within hour within 12 hours shutting down all of infowars in just 12 hours they all agreed somehow it was just a coincidence it wasn't a conspiracy and trump never did anything about that he never did anything about shutting down the censorship around the pandemic and even going up to the time of the election uh, this op-ed piece 4th of november the day after the election 2020 Chinese-style censorship is not a fix for the COVID-19 infodemic. And they're saying, whether you get this right or not, we need to not shut down discussion of this. And yet, what were we all talking about on the 4th of November? Nothing but Trump. Completely removed all of our concern about everything other than Trump and his election. And again, as I'd pointed out at the time, the... Um, you know, when you look at uh, uh, what was happening uh, with the election, um, nobody was interested in what was happening to them individually or in their community or to their family as much as they were interested in what was going on with Trump. Why? Because they were so beaten down, they couldn't imagine how they could fight against this unless they had the right person in the White House. Even if that were true. He's not the right person. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And understand that this thing is not done yet. Uh, you have uh, the establishment 
working to bring this whole thing up yet again. What I will tell you is that uh, come the fall and winter, uh, most everyone who's uh, an expert on pandemics and uh, uh, these viruses will tell you that strong chance that we see we'll see a resurgence of uh, the virus, whether it's the variants that we have now or new variants, and we got to be ready. Yes, and I see. Uh, so they bring it back up. That's uh, Javier Becerra, the uh, current HHS head. As I said before, in order to run this pandemic scam, the pharmaceutical company, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, took the CEO of Eli Lilly. They have been, uh, up to that point, one of the most connected, politically connected uh, pharmaceutical companies. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, as they were putting through some of this biodefense stuff under George W. Bush, they even had an amendment that was called the Lilly Rider for Eli Lilly. It was an exception that, you know, a change that was put in there specifically at the uh, demands of Eli Lilly. And so as uh, Trump used RFK Jr., to bid his price up to the big pharmaceutical companies. He met with them. They freaked out. They gave him a massive donation. And then right after that, he put in Alex Azar, CEO of Eli Lilly, as head of HHS and never uh, had anything to do with RFK Jr. after that. Uh, but um, uh, when you um, look at what happened with Biden, Biden didn't have a guy with a pharmaceutical industry. Instead, what he did was he brought in a lawyer. Javier Becerra is a lawyer. And I said at the time, he's going to try every legal trick in the book to coerce us to keep this COVID emergency going. That's why he's got somebody who is a lawyer at the uh, head of HHS. He'd been the attorney general in California, persecuting people who had exposed the trafficking in body parts by Planned Parenthood, uh, took the place of La La Harris. Uh, so I have a tip here from uh, Fonsi. Thank you very much for the tip. And she says, hi, me again. I know I said my husband died, but I never said what happened. He was given the COVID shot by the nursing home when they were told not to. Oh. They did it anyway. He died soon after from a heart attack, and they covered it up. I give what I can as you're one of the few things left in life that are normal. So sorry. So sorry. I play this. I was asked to reply to a comment, what do I think of people who refuse the vaccine, the COVID vaccine? Um, I've been hurt by the Pfizer vaccine. I have CIDP, chronic inflammation demyelination polyneuropathy. It's changed my life completely. If I had to do it all over again, I would have never got the vaccine. Um, I do work in healthcare. So I do work with patients. So where I work, we were told, you know, if you get the vaccine, you'll save lives. You won't get sick. You won't die. The media was saying the same thing. So I believed it. Um, my friends that didn't get the vaccine, I thought, how could you not get it? You're going to go home. What if you spread it? What if you have it? You don't know it and you give it to your family members. The worst case scenarios were playing out in my head because of what I was seeing inside the facility. We would have cookouts and things like that with my friends. I had 
a lot of friends that are unvaccinated and they still aren't vaccinated. We'd have cookouts and at first I was scared to go go there because I thought, oh my gosh, what if they're spreading COVID? It was like the dumbest thing I've ever thought of now that I think of it. Um, and once I started hanging out with them and things, they weren't getting sick. And the ones that did get sick, they got COVID lightly. They were back on their way. I had already gotten my vaccine. I had already started having issues and seeing a neurologist. I totally have changed my mind. They were the smart ones. They were the ones that didn't wear the masks. They were the ones that hung around each other and never caught it, never spread it. Some of the ones did get vaccinated because of their jobs. But the ones that aren't, I totally commend you and I wish I was one of you. I think very highly of you. And I'm up upset with myself. No job is worth it. No job. So there's my answer. You know, we've seen people who have been deceived. <clears throat> and uh, there is no shame in being deceived. We've seen people who have been coerced. We've seen people who, as Fawn pointed out, uh, in spite of saying don't do it, they did it anyway. <clears throat> this is an opinion piece. The headline says, an opinion piece from a vaccinated Australian writer. Uh, no other identification, in it, but it's an excellent piece. If COVID was a battlefield, it would still be warm with the bodies of the unvaccinated. Thankfully, the mandates are letting up and both sides of the war stumble back to the new normal. The unvaccinated are the heroes of the last two years, as they allowed us all to have a control group and the great experiment and to highlight the shortcomings of the COVID vaccine. Well, we have a control group and we now have our two years worth of research. We're almost through what would have been a phase one study, but they're still not interested in looking at the numbers, are they? But let me continue with what I had to say. Uh, the unvaccinated carry many battle scars and injuries as they are the people we tried to mentally break Yet no one wants to talk about what we did to them and what they forced the science, quote-unquote, to unveil. We knew that the waning immunity of the fully vaccinated had the same risk profile as others within society as the minority of the unvaccinated, and yet we marked them for special persecution. You see, we said that they had not done the right thing for the greater good by handing their bodies and their medical autonomy over to the state. I think, uh, let me just interject here and say, and I think one of the most despicable things I've seen is the, uh, the, the, the religious writers, the pastors, the Christian uh, op-ed pieces who are trying to put guilt trips on people for the same thing. And I'm talking about people like Franklin Graham, Al Mohler, and of course, Curtis Chang, who was richly rewarded, Curtis Chang was, and David French for manipulating other pastors. Anyway, 
many of the so-called health experts and political leaders in Australia admitted that the goal was to make life almost unlivable for the unvaccinated, which was multiplied many times by the collective mob with a fight taken into workplaces, friendships, and family gatherings. Today, the hard truth is none of it was justified as we took a quick slide from righteousness to absolute cruelty. We might lay the blame on our leaders and our health experts for the push, but each individual within society must be held accountable for stepping into the well-laid-out trap. We did this despite knowing full well that principled opposition is priceless when it comes to what goes inside our bodies, and we let ourselves be tricked into believing that going into another ineffective lockdown would be the fault of the unvaccinated and not the fault of the toxic policy of ineffective vaccines. We took pleasure in scapegoating the unvaccinated because after months of engineered lockdowns by political leaders blinded by power, having someone to blame and to burn at the stake felt good. We believe we had logic, truth, and love on our side, so it was easy to wish death upon the unvaccinated. Those of us who ridiculed and mocked the non-compliant did it because we were embarrassed by their courage and principles and didn't think the unvaccinated would make it through unbroken. And we turned the holdouts into punching bags. Uh, Lambie, Carr, Chant, Andrews, McGowan, Gunner, and their cast of hundreds, these are Australian politicians, and prominent roles need to be held to account for vilifying the unvaccinated in public and fueling angry social media mobs. The mobs, the mask Nazis, the vaccine disciples have been embarrassed by betting against the unvaccinated because mandates only had the power we gave them. It was not compliance that ended domination by big pharma companies, Bill Gates and his many organizations, and the World Economic Forum. It was thanks to the people we tried to embarrass, ridicule, mock, and tear down. Well, I hope that is true, but I'm not ready to declare victory yet. We are far from it. This is not finished. I played for you the clip of Javier Becerra. We even have traitors like Greg Abbott, who has been a traitor from the very beginning. First thing he did with his Trump cash was spend $300 million on contact tracing with a shell corporation that both Republican and Democrats were questioning. What is this company in Frisco, Texas you gave this money to? And then in the end of March this year, Greg Abbott extended the emergency order. You see, the corruption of elections does not begin with the very end process where they're stuffing ballots to get their guy in. The election has already been corrupted in Texas, for example, for governor. You have Greg Abbott, who is a secret shill for the World Economic Forum and the UN's agenda. And you have on the other side an open shill for the same people. It is professional wrestling. And they pick, the two parties pick who is going to be in the ring. And they have their guaranteed outcome. Whether you're talking about NAFTA, well, well okay, we're going to have uh, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Both of them want NAFTA. Or you talk about Obamacare. We got Mitt Romney, who already did Obamacare in Massachusetts as governor. So we got uh, Romney care or Obamacare. They're going to be the same. No difference. They make sure that when it is something big, they get what they want. When it comes to the uh, pandemic MacGuffin, the vaccine MacGuffin, when it comes to uh, 
the rest of these things, they're going to make sure that they have both sides covered. They hedge their bets. They have two candidates who are going to put through the key agenda. There'll be differences on other things, but these two candidates will push through that agenda. You know, when we look at what has happened with this and, and blaming the vaccinated, I think of that shameful CEO of One America, the insurance company, whose response to more people dying from non-COVID complications beginning in the third quarter, accelerating through the fourth quarter of 2021 as the vaccine mandates were being used to coerce people. And uh, he could not deny it. He had to explain it because they're losing money. We don't expect to see this kind of event like once in every 200 years. This completely breaks all of our models, which is how we become super wealthy. So what he did was he blamed the unvaccinated. He said, well, I know that they're wrong. Even though all these people are saying that they didn't die of COVID, I know that they died of COVID. And furthermore, I know that nobody dies of COVID unless they're unvaccinated. Therefore, we will raise the rates of the unvaccinated. And at the very center of this, it's not just the prestige and the power. It is also, of course, the love of money that is the root of all evil. And if you look at the people in that hospital that vaccinated Fawn's husband, against her wishes and against her orders. Why did they do it? Ultimately, it was for money. Ultimately, it was for money. They get a bonus for doing all the things that the pharmaceutical people, that the Center for Medicare, CMS, and all the rest of these people, the bonuses, all of the pandemic, it was done for money. It was done by the business leaders telling the doctors and nurses who knew better but followed the orders. And they did that to people. They put them on ventilators and killed them. They injected them with vaccines and killed them. And they have blood on their hands. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Stay with me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's um, 
I cut that off shortly. Didn't mean to do that. Um, let's talk about why truth matters. So many of the cultural debates that have raged around us and captivate our attentions result from dueling definitions of truth. And we see lawsuit after lawsuit about this, don't we? What is truth? Our whole world is hanging in the balance of what truth is. Well, as uh, this writer uh, from Breakpoint points out, all ideas have consequences, especially what our ideas are about truth. And that is especially true even in postmodern society where the dogma, the absolute truth is that there is no truth. I have a truth. You've got a truth. And uh, so, uh, as he points out, 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer said, if there's no absolutes by which to judge society, then society is absolute. Does that not describe our world today? There are no absolutes that stand over our society, over our government, over the mob, and so they become absolute. This is why people who freak out when they see a Christian candidate, uh, like the guy who is running uh, for governor in Pennsylvania, oh, well, you know, it's Christian nationalists. It's like, this is somebody who believes that he is under authority to a uh, moral standard that is going to check his behavior. You should be afraid of the people who don't believe in a God because they act as if they were God unanswerable to anybody, and you give somebody like that power, mm. that belief and a little bit of power will turn a human being into a monster. Uh, thank you, Peter Folko. Appreciate that tip on Roxanne. Uh, even a brief look at the half century since Francis Schaeffer wrote that reveals how right he was. Because of the loss of belief in the existence of truth, our cultural conversations become more fractured, fractured and disconnected our willingness to hear one another out seems to diminish by the day. In uh, corporate, political, and other cultural activists readily work to impose their views on everybody else. Years ago, Chuck Colson, and again, he's writing for Breakpoint, which is uh, Colson's organization. Uh, Chuck Colson warned in his book, The Faith, that Christians must not give up on the idea of truth, nor downplay its importance, even in an attempt to gain a wider hearing. You understand that? That's where the compromise always comes, you know. Um, you always say, uh, well, um, in order to be heard, in order to be effective, in order to not offend somebody, well, I'm going to back off of my principles or I'm going to uh, downplay what I know is true. Or in the case of a politician, you're told, don't worry about Trump. He knows that this is wrong, and he really doesn't believe in what he's doing. He's just playing 4D chess, so he keeps to play, keep, stays in the game and keeps playing. And so the problem is the people who tell you that, uh, the commentators and the journalists who tell you that Trump is playing 4D chess, they've made that uh, compromise themselves. Uh, I'll tell people what they want to hear, not what is true, because that'll keep me in the game. It'll keep my job. It'll keep me growing my organization. They've consciously decided that they're going to compromise their integrity and the truth in order to stay in the game, in order to play 4D chess. The early Christians who treated plague victims, you understand that happened? 
early Christians didn't run into their homes and shut the doors and put a mask over their face. They went out and treated plague victims. We don't even know what Christianity like that looks like anymore, anywhere in the world. There's a few places where that happened, but most places, no. Early Christians who treated plague victims were not embracing the pagan culture, nor were they trying to make Christianity more relevant or to win over the hearts of an empire. They were simply carrying out the truth of their faith, that every person is made in the image of God and therefore possesses dignity. They were also, because they were witnesses to the supernatural events, they were not concerned about what happens in this short life, this short trial. That gave them a, uh, a, a foundation. They gave them a fulcrum point that is outside of this life. And it gave them the leverage to change the world for the better. The task of this generation, as it will be for every generation, is to understand Christianity as a complete view of the world and humankind's place in it. If Christianity is not the truth, it is nothing, and our faith is nothing but sentimentality. Uh, so uh, looking at um, what we were told in 1939, this is continuing on with um, a breakpoint op-ed piece, No Civilization Without Restraint, wise words from 1939. It is not normal or healthy for a culture to talk about sex this much. That was uh, something that C.S. Lewis had to say. He said, uh, you know, it's normal to eat food. It's normal to have a, an appetite for food. But he said, if all you did was look at pictures of food and talk about it obsess uh, obsessively and do nothing but eat food, I'd say you got a problem. And C.S. Lewis said in the middle of the 20th century, he started comparing that to what was going on worldwide in Western civilization, at least about sex. And so, as they say in this uh, piece, from Pride Month to education to companies telegraphing their commitments to inclusion and diversity to just about every commercial, movie, or TV show produced today, sexual identity is treated as if it is central to human identity, human purpose, and human happiness. This vision of life and of the world is being force-fed to children who are essentially subjects of our social experiments. You know, when I think of somebody who is absolutely obsessed with sex, I think there's no better picture of it. Of all the different pictures that we have in our society, I think Trump's choice for uh, the guy to head our nuclear waste oversight, Sam Brinson. When you look at that guy, you know, dressed up in his leather dress and his high heels, and he's got uh, people that are masked up and bound up in leather and on chains at his feet and that type of thing. That guy is into this kind of sadomasochistic bondage sex scene, and yet he doesn't realize just how much in bondage and how much of a slave he is to his obsession with sex, which is why I say he's not qualified to handle something as serious as nuclear waste. He's too busy, inwardly focused, and possessed by his sex obsession. If the energy spent talking about sex is disproportionate, it's important to know that there were some who saw this coming. The best example is an Oxford sociologist, J.D. Unwin. 
In 1939, Unwin published a landmark book summarizing his research. The book was called Sex and Culture, and it was a look at 80 tribes and six historical civilizations over the course of five millennia through the lens of a single question. Does a culture's idea of sexual liberation predict its success or its collapse? And his findings in 1939 were overwhelming. Quote, just as societies have advanced and then faded away into a state of general decrepitude, so in each of them has marriage first previously changed from a temporary affair based upon mutual consent to a lifelong association of one man with one woman and then turned back into a loose union or to polygamy. And he said, the whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has been absolutely monogamous, nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous customs. And so he saw a pattern behind societies that unraveled. If three consecutive generations abandoned sexual restraint, built around the protections of marriage and fidelity, the civilization collapsed. Where are we today? When did we have our sexual revolution? Well, it was about 60 years ago, right? That's been, um, uh, I'd say, under a best-case scenario. We are right on the cusp of it being too late, but I would say that it probably is too late because now you see what has happened. This civilization has now turned on its kindergartners in a sexual obsession. Goes on to say, simply put, sexuality is essential for survival. However, sexuality is such a powerful force. It must be controlled or else it can destroy the future rather than secure it. Wrongly ordered sexuality is devastating for both individuals and entire societies. Unwin's conclusions can be boiled down to a single issue. Are people living for the future with the ability to delay gratification? Or are they focusing only on the here and now? Think about Sam Brinson. When a culture fails to restrain its sexual instincts, people think less about securing the future and instead compromise the stability, the productivity, and the well-being of the next generation in their pursuit of sexual pleasure. That's right. We are consuming our kids with our sexual lust. That's what's going on with all this grooming stuff. Uh, Unwin claims that he had no moral or ideological axe to grind in this research. He said, I make no opinion about right or wrong, but his work is nevertheless profound, as are his conclusions, which seem to be living out with us in real time. According to Pew Research, almost 90% of children lived with two married parents in 1960. By 2008, that number had dropped to just 64%. Over the same period, the percentage of kids born to unmarried women rose from 5% to 41%. There is really no question of how this impacts children. Studies show that teens from single-parent or blended families are 300% more likely to need psychological assistance, twice as likely to drop out of high school, and more likely to commit suicide. They end up with less college education, lower-paying jobs, and their parents are more likely to get divorced themselves. This is not because children from non-traditional homes have less potential or less value, nor do stable two-parent families guarantee outcomes for children. 
Statistics do not determine the future of an individual, but they can identify the future of a society on a civilizational level. It's just a matter of math. The early days of the sexual revolution reframed the morality of sexual behavior, but today it's gone further. Undermining the already fragile identity and the rising generation, fraying it in the various directions of the ever-growing acronym of sexual identities. Anywhere from one to five to nearly, anywhere from one in five, that'd be 20%, to nearly 40% of young people now identify as LGBT. Or in the case of one junior high school class in the Northeast I heard of recently, quote, all of them do. Christian faithfulness in this cultural moment must involve the protection of children and a commitment to the future of society. At the very least, that means speaking up, especially when it's unpopular to do so. Along the way, we'll have to reject the inevitability thesis, the notion that all is lost and that things will only get worse, so nothing that we do matters. With courage and unconditional love for our neighbor, we continue to speak the truth. Do you understand that? You must not give up on this inevitability thesis. And if your eschatology is that everything's going to get much worse and we're right at the cusp of Jesus coming back so that everything's going to get really bad and the worse it gets, the more that validates my feeling that Jesus is coming back right away, uh, don't do that. Whatever your eschatology, if you think the world is going to end tomorrow, you plant a tree today because you don't know. Nobody knows. And that's no excuse to back off, to take it easy, to recline. We will need to remind ourselves and each other uh, what should be obvious but is not. The ideas and behavior of the late sexual revolution are not normal. It was one of the first new normal things that ought to be rejected. Our new normal sexual mores are not normal, not at all, and they keep getting more abnormal. Uh, abnormal. That's <laughs> that's what happened. Young Frankenstein. Uh, nor <laughs> nor is our fascination and focus on sexuality as a central defining factor in human existence and value. Human sexuality is not some arbitrary construct like a speed limit. As much. It's as much a part of the fabric of life as gravity. We may deny that, but we will not avoid the pain of hitting the ground if we do. It's absolutely true. You know, we look at this, and it is such a perfect storm, isn't it? You know, here we are, after generations of embracing uh, the sexual revolution, and we think that um, America is um, exceptional. Yeah, this type of action that has taken down nations and civilizations over and over again, you know, the, the waning days of civilizations, why I talk about the corruption, the sexual immorality of the Weimar Republic just before Hitler came to power, this type of thing that we've seen happen over and over again everywhere, and yet we think it's going to be different this time. It doesn't apply to us because we're Americans. We'll never be enslaved. We'll never have war on American soil from foreign sources because we're Americans. And yet you have this perfect storm coming together of the fourth turning. You have this global agenda where all of our world leaders are marching in lockstep to the orders of a literal Nazi. 
at Davos, who is working hand-in-glove to implement a long-standing agenda. They even call it an agenda. How can you not see what it is? It is a conspiracy. But they have used the term conspiracy as a weapon to keep people from actually talking about uh, what the true plan is and the actual criminal conspiracy that is being conducted. We have to pretend that it is just it just happened because we've got these evil politicians. Well, how do we get all these evil politicians implementing all this stuff on exactly the same time frame? I mean, we're talking about 2030. We're also talking about how Justin Trudeau and Biden and Macron are all implementing their vaccine mandates at exactly the same time and doing it a couple of months in advance. It's not an emergency if you're making these, implementing these things to take effect in a couple of months. It's not an emergency that you're responding to. You don't wait for a couple of months if it's an emergency. And yet they had their schedule. So the end goal of 2030, as well as the immediate steps, are all in sync. They're in lockstep. You know what conspiracy means? It means literally breathing together. Do we not have Macron and Biden and Trudeau and Mark Rutte in the Netherlands and all these people? Are they not literally breathing together? Was Trump not breathing together with them in 2020? Of course he was. Because everything that he did was aligned with these people. And he even provided the tool for them. He provided the tool. So when we talk about the corruption and the obsession, the sex obsession of our society, this is what it looks like. A principal pushing a trans book on five-year-olds telling everybody it is a phenomenal read. You see, we've been 60 years into this. We're ready for the fourth turning. We're ready for our society to collapse because of our sexual degradation. But don't worry, because we're told now that there's going to be a spiritual revolution among many uh, young adults. The digital revolution, or digital religion, I should say, is sparking a spiritual revolution amongst millennials. Oh, really? Uh, Digital religion is leading to a spiritual revolution among many adults. According to a new study, they say religious communities are using these tools to reach millennials who are looking to participate in organized religion without having to attend in-person services. Well, you know, maybe you could also find somebody on the Internet and never have to actually go meet them. You know, uh, I'm sure that if you met them in person, uh, you would, you know, see all kinds of defects up close. If you hung around them in person, you would see all kinds of personal defects, personality defects, uh, things that you didn't like, things where they step on you. But, you know, you keep them at a distance and an arm's length. You keep them on the Internet. Well, that kind of works, and that's what they're doing with church. Because you don't want to get in there with a guy who's got, you know, oh, this guy, look at the way he dresses or whatever, you know, or, uh, the way they talk. Or they got bad breath or what? Yeah, I don't, let's just keep it online. And then I can turn it on or off or do whatever I wish. Keep it at arm's length. No, no, you know. I would say, uh, give me that old-time religion. <laughs> it's good enough for me, right? <laughs> in person. In person. Because the next thing will be a virtual marriage. You'll have a, you know, you'll work in the uh, metaverse VR, you probably marry in the metaverse VR. 
They'll come up with some kind of attachment to uh, simulate sex. Uh, while digital re uh, religion isn't necessarily attracting a lot of new millennials to participate, it is making the experience of those already involved richer. Oh, so it isn't really a revolution, is it? Uh, yeah, the, the computer will be our savior. It will recruit us. It will change us, right? We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about uh, the government has started a massive wildfire. They burned 432 homes. Now they're forcing the victims to pay for it. Absolutely amazing. We'll be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Using free speech to free minds. It's the David Knight Show. If you like the Eagles, on a dark desert highway, the cars, and Huey Lewis in the news, they say the you'll love the Classic Hits channel at APS Radio. Download our app or listen now at APSRadio.com. All right, and uh, thank you, uh, Nick Ellenbecker. Thank you very much for the tip. I appreciate that on, on Rockfin. Um, appreciate that. Um, U.S. government started a massive wildfire. Uh, 432 homes burned down, and now they're not doing anything about it. This, is, this reminds me so much of what we saw in Oregon. And if you remember, the standoff that eventually happened in the Malheur uh, thing was... Uh, originally about people trying to support the Hammonds as a farming family. And uh, the government was trying to take their land. That's the bottom line. It's a plot spoiler here. Uh, what they had done, and it was something that the government does all the time, the government will uh, set a backfire uh, in order to, uh, to protect against a forest fire or to reduce the risk. That's a routine thing for the government to set a fire and to have it as a controlled burn in order to protect people from an out-of-control wildfire. And so the Hammond family did the same thing on their massive farm. And it got out just a little bit, and it burned, I think it's one and a half acres of nothing prairie land uh, out in Oregon. And the federal government came after them on terrorist charges with prison sentences and that type of thing. And so that's how that whole thing began. They were trying to uh, rally the Hammonds to defy that and uh, to resist doing the time. Uh, they eventually, however, surrendered and did the time. And um, eventually they were pardoned by Trump, which, good for him. That was one of the few things he did that was right. Uh, even Trump does <laughs> some things right occasionally. In April of this year, however, the U.S. government started the largest wildfire in New Mexico's history. The fires were set by the U.S. Forest Service, ironically, to reduce wildfire risk. And that's a common thing. Again, that does one of their defenses. You guys do this all the time. The BLM and the Forestry Service, you do that. That's not terrorism. 
And there was nothing of any value that was destroyed. But in this particular case, a lot was destroyed. Uh, so thanks to uh, incompetence, neglect, ignorance, the controlled burn morphed into a catastrophic blaze and engulfed over 530 square miles of mostly privately owned forests and meadows and destroyed 432 homes as well. Which also reminds me as we went to, uh, and Travis and I went up to report on what happened in Oregon, we talked to that logger, uh, Ted Haupt, who was uh, Todd Haupt, I think is his name. And um, he had uh, worked all of his life, was about ready to retire. He had private uh, logging area that was going to be his retirement. And the government, through negligence, had uh, a fire that got out of control. Again, it was a negligence. It was in that particular case, it was started by lightning, but it was because of their negligence in terms of managing the forest, leaving deadwood on the ground in the forest. It uh, turned into a raging inferno and destroyed all of his uh, forestry, uh, private forest land, which was going to leave him penniless. Just a, a tragedy. But now after burning down these homes, these 432 homes, and burning down their land, the state is demanding that the victims pay for the damage themselves, despite previous reassurances that they would be given support. Biden had said after he visited the state in June, again, it had the big fire in April, and then he goes there in June, he says, today I'm announcing the federal government's covering 100% of the costs. But like pretty much everything else, Biden says it wasn't true. FEMA has so far granted $4.2 million to the 1,164 survivors of the fire, of the U.S. Forest Service fire, making an average payout of $3,600. Wow. To one of the hundreds of folks who lost their home, this is a kick in the teeth. According to a recent report in Reuters, cost-sharing statutes on federal relief programs are preventing the victims from receiving the help that they need. Instead, the, of the promised 100% of the cost, victims of the government's seeming act of arson were told that they are on the hook for 25% of the total cost. Uh, Daniel Insanias and his wife, Lori, were victims of the government blaze and are now finding out that they are on the hook for the damage. Why am I going to pay anything when I didn't cause this fire, he told Reuters. And as uh, Reuters pointed out, uh, these people don't have millions of dollars to shell out. Many of the fire-hit families, said Reuters, cannot afford sharing at least 25% of the cost, which offers relief such as uh, for the uh, federal program, which offers release, relief such as stabilization of burn areas that are prone to flash flooding. Residents sometimes own large areas of land passed down from 1800s Spanish-Mexican land grants while they work blue-collar jobs. They're really struggling. Uh, so the federal government burns down your house, says uh, another victim. Uh, so they're responsible, in my mind, to pay 100% of the cost of rebuilding. Another victim, 59 years old, says, if you don't have insurance, you're pretty much on your own. And um, they are going, they're considering putting together a massive civil case to be filed against the Forestry Service. For now, hundreds of families are living in tents and campers next to the ashes of their homes, hoping that something changes. But if history is any indicator, they'll likely be waiting a very, very long time. There will be no help coming for these people unless they win in court, and that'll be a very long time doing that. 
And the people who did this, again, you know, incompetence, a little bit of mistake. I mean, you compare burning down uh, over 500 square miles, 530 square miles, and 432 homes. And when the Hammonds had a fire that burned down uh, one and a half acres of, uh, I say burn it down, there was nothing there. It was uh, sagebrush. Uh, they were charged with terrorism. So what should we charge the Forestry Service with? We've seen similar scenarios unfold within the police state. Uh, this is coming from a Free Thought Project, by the way. When SWAT teams destroy the homes of innocent people, then tell them they're on the hook for the bill. In July of 2020, Vicki Baker, 75, was told she had to cover $50,000 in damages to her home after the police literally blew it up looking for a suspect. And it would take two years for her to finally get her money back. Free Thought Project ends by talking about uh, the late Harry Brown, libertarian writer who ran for president in 96 and 2000. And um, he said, the government is good at one thing. It knows how to break your legs and then hand you a crutch and say, see, if it weren't for the government, you wouldn't be able to walk. That is exactly what the government is about to do with our transportation, our food, our housing, and everything. They're literally burning down our society. And it isn't because they're incompetent. It's a plan. Uh, visitors to the world's tallest tree face $5,000 fines. Yeah, there you go. That's one of the other things that Harry Brown used to tell people. He'd say, you know, I want to, let's get rid of the IRS. And he goes, but to do it, you'd have to get rid of your favorite government program. Would you do that? Would you get rid of your favorite government program if you could get rid of the IRS in exchange? And he would ask people, he said, what's your favorite government program? And it'd be things like, um, well, you know, the weather system, the weather reports. And he goes, are you serious? You know, you, you couldn't do without that. <laughs> it's not even right. And again, I challenge you, if you believe any of this climate change stuff, then uh, I suggest that you get multiple apps that tell you what the temperature is. And at any given point, look at that. And compare it to the thermometer in your house, but compare them to each other. You know, go to a city and, you know, say, uh, you know, what is the uh, temperature uh, in Austin? And you're going to get a lot of different results. As a matter of fact, every one of them will be different. And every one of them will typically vary by more than the amount the climate alarmists say that we have to keep the world's temperature within. Okay, compared to some imagined historical record. We can't vary by more than one and a half degrees or the entire planet is going to melt down. And yet they can't even agree what the current temperature is anywhere. So this tree that is so sacred now to the forestry service, the world's tallest tree as certified by the Guinness Book of Records, Hyperion is what they call it. It is the tallest living tree. It's now officially off limits to visitors. And if you even go there, if you're caught near that tree, Six months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Uh, the tree deep in the park has no trails leading to it. It has faced serious environmental degradation from thrill seekers who have visited since 2006 when it was found by a pair of naturalists. And this is uh, a couple of, uh, brings up a couple of issues about our government. First of all, you know, one of the things that people would say, well, I, um, we want the government because it, it keeps track of the national, natural parks. It's like, well, that could be done as a state function, right? It could be done by locals. We used to have local conservation projects. 
Uh, you had uh, people like John Muir, who was first protecting uh, the Redwood Forest and things like that. He didn't have the federal government doing it. But when the federal government takes over a park, what do they typically do? They brag in uh, Yellowstone. They, they would always brag that you're only able to get to 1% of the park. They keep the other 99% of it away from you. So they don't even make it available to the public. We've seen in the Tonto National Forest in uh, Arizona, when you had John McCain working out his deals with a foreign copper company, they were going to take that park that was being used as a park. It was a, a historical site to the Apaches, I believe was the Indian tribe, and, and it was also a sacred area to them. And uh, many other things that were being used. Uh, other people had uh, some uh, property rights to certain aspects of it. They're going to take all that away and give it to a foreign company so they could create a hole so deep that it could be seen from space to mine copper for a foreign uh, company and to do it that way. Uh, they're not good stewards of the land, number one. Number two, uh, they're not... Um, uh, allowing you to participate in it. If you look at something this is so popular, wouldn't you think that perhaps the Forestry Service or the Parks Department might make a, a path there? If they're worried that people are going to be hacking through the brush, uh, then maybe what you do is you have a controlled path to this so people could see the world's largest tree. No. Instead, the government's attitude today is six months in jail and $5,000 fine if you want to see this thing. Uh, so they said it's located off the trail through dense vegetation. We're not going to build a trail. And it requires heavy bushwhacking in order to reach the tree. Well, um, again, uh, they won't do anything about that except to punish people. Uh, the largest tree, the General Sherman, uh, in terms of density and not height, is a little bit shorter than Hyperion. Uh, and um, that is available for people to see. And they won't throw you in jail if you look at it. The sacred Talk about sacred totem poles. Uh, the State Department, by the way, this is also kind of strange. This is um, uh, rented out a five-story Upper East Side mansion. Who'd they rent it out to in 1992 to 1996? They rented it out to Jeffrey Epstein, who was president from 1992 to 1996. Well, most of that time it was Bill Clinton, right? Uh, he was elected in 92, so the first year of that would not be covered while he was there. And there's a clip from uh, the Daily News out of uh, New York, which is kind of interesting. And they talked to a guy who, for the last year at that point in time, had lived in this um, five-story Upper East Side mansion. And he hadn't paid a dime in rent. They said the landlord who's uh, losing out the rent money uh, is the taxpayers, they said, because of a dispute in which the U.S. government that owns the building, uh, this lawyer, Fisher, has lived rent-free in the mansion that used to be an official Iranian residence. It was then seized by the feds when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1980. The house resembles a small castle. This is Epstein's mansion he eventually got. It has carved oak doors, a white marble foyer, uh, three kitchens, <clears throat> three bedrooms, a library, and a floor-to-ceiling bookcases. A steam room, a 19th century chandeliers, brass sconces, and a white marble central staircase. And it has location. It sits in the heart of Upper East Side, a few feet from the designer boutiques of Madison Avenue. Fisher said, I love it. 
But all good things can come to an end. The Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office went to court last week to evict him, saying that he owes a year's worth of $15,000 a month rent for his palace. And this is, uh, again, you know, back in the 90s, it was $180,000, they said. He said he offered to pay the $15,000 a month. He said, I'd even pay him $20,000 a month. But the federal government didn't want that. Instead, uh, they took it from him and they started renting it to Jeffrey Epstein for $15,000 a month, even when this guy was willing to pay $20,000. Uh, so they identified Jeffrey Epstein at the time, uh, again, in, um, in the 90s. Uh, he was only known as Jeffrey Epstein, a Palm Beach, Florida financial advisor. Oh, so how did this guy get it? Uh, so <clears throat> by January 1996, he had moved out. He eventually decided to rent it to Fisher, a lawyer who had represented clients and the pizza connection. <laughs> I'm making this up. And the French connection heroin trials. So Fisher said Epstein assured him the State Department had signed off on the deal. Um, so he began paying Epstein $20,000 a month, which gave Epstein a $5,000 uh, profit. But eventually all this came to an end and they evicted um, Fisher and he was willing to, you know, he said, Hey, I'll pay you directly and cut out uh, Jeffrey Epstein. I'll pay you directly. But, um, in November 96, the feds sued Epstein and Fisher. And, um, then they gave the men 45 days to deposit back rent in an escrow account and promised to resolve the questions of eviction quickly. Uh, and then after that, he got a special deal on the the next mansion from the guy that was always running the uh, Victoria's Secret stuff, right? Uh, but isn't that interesting that as they took that from the Ayatollah, they gave it to uh, Epstein, and then he rented it, sub-rented it to another guy. Uh, yeah, and it raises some questions, doesn't it? Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act will not actually reduce inflation. Are you surprised? I think the most amazing thing about this that I've not seen anybody talk about you know, they're in this article from Reason, they're talking about the fact that it violates the promise that Biden has made many, many times how he's not going to raise any taxes on households that earn less than $400,000 a year. But uh, they break that promise. It's kind of like, you know, when he went there and he told the people, yeah, we're going to pay you 100% for these, for your house that we burned down. Well, no, that's not true either. This uh, mansion bill, uh, mansion Schumer deal, is going to hike taxes by $54 billion next year. More than $16 billion of that total will come from households making less than $200,000, not less than $400,000. And then they'll get another $14 billion from the households earning between $200,000 and $500,000. So in a sense, uh, you, know, you can't really tell about the promise because they don't break this down to the $400,000. But if you put those two together, uh, you would say that um, $30 billion of the $54 billion is going to be taxes raised on people that Biden said he was never going to raise the taxes on. Uh, but the key thing about this, I think, is that we need to look at the total amount that is being spent and how it is being spent on climate issues. It's $734 um, billion, something like that. And how does that compare to the... Uh, to the uh, overall budget for the Pentagon. You know, that is one of the biggest 
uh, expenses that the government has outside of entitlement programs. I think it is the biggest expense. And so when you look at the entire Defense Department budget for 2022, it's $768 billion. And $25 billion of that was added at the last minute by Democrats. So really what was proposed to run all of the military, and we're talking about all the military, all the salaries, all the benefits and everything else, all of the super expensive military equipment, that uh, uses many, many, many gallons per mile, if it's a tank or if it's a ship or if it's a jet plane. I mean, you know, the fuel costs and everything. No expenses spared. And everything that we do with the Pentagon totals up to, uh, you know, really $743 billion, but they added another 25 there. And you compare that to the 736 or $34 billion, I mean, you're only about $10 billion away from what they're going to do in this so-called Inflation Reduction Act, everybody's, people are talking about nothing other than the spending that's going to be on climate. And so they're going to be spending uh, essentially what we spend on the military budget, just on climate boondoggles, climate boondoggles, which tells you that there's going to be no expense spared. I mean, this is, this is so much money that, you know, what, what are they going to, how do you compare this to, you know, an F-35 jet that costs, I don't know how much, you know, it's, it's a multi-trillion dollar program. I don't know how much each of those costs. I don't know how much it costs to operate them on a regular basis, but all of those costs are paid for in the military budget. And yet look at the fact that this climate budget is going to be as big as the military budget. It's just Mind-boggling. I can't get my mind around what kind of waste uh, and, and how they're going to completely rework our economy with this uh, climate issue. Uh, it is truly concerning. Um, I want to take a look before we uh, take a break here at the top of the hour. Uh, I want to take a look at uh, what is happening with um, the money pockets or the monkeypox, as they want to call it, right? You have a New York State official has declared monkeypox, or money pockets, as, quote, an imminent threat to public health. Where are they going with this? Is it just going to be about the money, or are they going to try to extend the panic and the fear and the control and the rest of this stuff with us? The New England Journal of Medicine study published last month found that 98% of people infected with this uh, outside of Africa were bisexual or homosexual. And um, so a homosexual public health historian previously urged officials not to dance around the issue of homosexuality and monkeypox. I worry that public health leaders are not doing enough to directly alert men who have sex with men about monkeypox. And yet, what are they concerned about? Their concern, the WHO's concern, is um, to recommend that gay and bisexual men limit sexual partners, uh, but they are not going to ostracize in them for this. They're not going to put, force them to uh, wear masks or to uh, go into a detention center, right? I mean, they did that to all of us with COVID, but they're not going to do that uh, to this group of people. I'm not advocating that, but again, you notice a double standard. Oh, no, no, just continue with your hedonistic debauchery. How dare anybody criticize our masters, the LGBT? 
The Who's monkeypox expert, Rosamond Lewis, uh, came up with a figure that of 99% of being in the homosexual community. And as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, the U.S. has reported more than 3,500 cases of monkeypox across 46 states. Now, a lot of these people have not had any symptoms. And they haven't made the case that anybody has died with this. And there are, when you talk about a sexually transmitted disease, if you look at other sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea, if I recall correctly, I think it was a thousand times more prevalent. You're a thousand times more likely to catch uh, gonorrhea than monkeypox. Nevertheless, they have called for global censorship of all of this. Uh, here is the, you know, the way the World Health Organization, which is a bunch of Marxists, uh, what do they want to do? Well, they want to censor people who talk about what has happened. The stigma and discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus and can fuel the outbreak. As we have seen with COVID-19, Misinformation and disinformation can spread rapidly online. So we call on all social media platforms, tech companies, and news organizations to work with us to prevent and counter harmful information. Yeah, so that's the response to that. Uh, we're just going to censor people. We'll declare an emergency. We will send massive amounts of cash and we've already got Scott Gottlieb, who was the first FDA commissioner for Trump out there saying, well, I think we may have already missed the window. We've got to really bump this up. He's now working for Pfizer, of course. That's uh, what we, we know about this. That's why I call it uh, the monkey pockets, the, the money pockets, because that's what he's trying to do, fill his pockets with money off of this. And to uh, fill everybody with panic. According to the WHO's Lewis, the virus will have an opportunity to continue spreading if people don't limit the number of sex partners and anonymous sexual contact. Well, I think he ought to be shut down for hate speech. I mean, that clearly is hateful. To tell people to be responsible about this? Uh, to stop having gay orgies? I mean, who is he to say that? Really, the stigma and the discrimination can be as dangerous as any virus and can fuel the outbreak, as you heard him just say. So the New York, so New York has also joined with the WHO, and they want to rename this because they said that monkeypox is stigmatizing, stigmatizing. Now that's a very important principle, isn't it? Naming is a very important thing. If you name something, you've established control over that. I've got more to say about that, but just uh, I had this uh, letter from a listener, Andy. He works in EMS. He says, um, there is, uh, uh, here's one of the local news agencies uh, in Atlanta that's pushing monkeypox vaccines. He says, I have my own suspicions about this monkeypox thing here in Atlanta. We didn't have any problems until they started the two-shot vaccine series uh, for monkeypox. Now, cases, quote-unquote, are rising, and it seems to coincide with vaccine rollout here. That being said, nobody I've talked to at the hospitals or in EMS knows anything about these monkeypox patients they say they have, just that they saw it on the news. So the people in the hospitals and the people in the ambulances say, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've seen it on the news. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. Same type of thing in reverse that they do with you about the uh, adverse effects of vaccines. Well, I thought it was just me. You mean there's other people who are getting harmed by these vaccines? Well, we know this uh, monkeypox is all over the place, but I haven't seen it. 
I've just only seen it on the news. He says, um, is this just being done to stoke fear? What I have personally seen seems to be really bad cases of shingles. Even my ex-wife, who I pleaded with not to take the jab, had shingles and spots all over her body when she took the Trump juice, which is odd because the shingles typically just erupt in a spot or two along a nerve pathway. Typically, it isn't from head to toe. Thankfully, she hasn't died or had any obvious long-term complications yet, but what she experienced could be clinically diagnosed as monkeypox these days. Anyway, hope you have a good day, he said. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Stay with us. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing. And the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Whether you're feeling like the blues or bluegrass, APS Radio has you covered. Check out a wide variety of channels on our app at APSRadio.com. A little bit about entertainment, because it really does have a big effect on our life. I I saw this story on uh, WND, and it was an op-ed piece by Chuck Norris. And you know, when Chuck Norris writes something, you just got to read it, you know. (laughs) But he was talking about John Wayne. And um, he said, like a lot of kids, I dreamed of becoming a cowboy when I was young. And there was no one who set that bar better than John Wayne. He said, um, uh, still my biggest screen hero. His persona helped me to fashion mine and over 200 episodes of the TV series Walker, Texas Ranger. He said, uh, Wayne had some of the best one-liners in Western movie history and the rest of this. But he was talking about when John Wayne faced off against real Russian assassins, he said. I mean, this sounds like uh, something out of Hail Caesar by the Coen brothers. <laughs> it kind of reads that way as well. Uh, he said, um, uh, there's one thing about the Duke you can take to the bank. He was tough, and he proved it on and off screen. And he was you know, pretty much not, he wasn't an actor, really. I mean, as he was a, a uh, personality, a force. <laughs> I mean, I'll never forget uh, was is one of these uh, Hollywood versions of the Bible, and they had uh, brought him in as a cameo, dressed him up as a centurion. <laughs> one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, and uh, 
and they just splice this in. There's like there's he's like standing off by himself. You could tell that they just dressed him up and brought him in and shot the scene off to the side. And you know they they pan over to him and he draws out, surely he was a son of God or something like. That. It's like what was that about? That was the most. Um, that was the poorest use of John Wayne I think I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, Michael Caine had stories about him as well. He said uh, he had had um, uh, one or two successful films, and they had uh, carried over into the U.S., but he said nobody knew him. And uh, he had an American agent who brought him over to meet some people to try to pick up some films. So he's a very young, new actor. And he said he was just kind of hanging around. He didn't have uh, anything lined up. And he's hanging around. He's staying in this luxury uh, hotel in uh, Beverly Hills. And and he, one day, and he would just, after a while, there was nothing to do. He'd just go down the lobby and sit there and watch the stars coming and going. You know, people, celebrities that he'd see. And he goes, and so he's sitting there one day, and all of a sudden there's this big wind that comes up. And he goes, all the trees and the shrubbery outside is going crazy. And it's a helicopter landing. And out of the helicopter strides John Wayne and, and he walks in and he stops and he goes, I know you or something like that. And he says, uh, uh, you're going to be a star because let me give you uh, some advice. And he said, he was surprised that John Wayne recognized him, but he said, let me give you some advice. He said, um, talk low, talk slow and don't say too much. And they looked down at his shoes and he had suede shoes and he goes, and one other thing, he says, never wear suede shoes. He says, uh, you're going to get big and you're going to become a star. And he goes, and you're going to be in the men's room and some guy's going to be in the stall next to you and he's going to say, Michael Caine. And he's going to uh, <laughs> turn and pee all over your shoes. So wear boots is what he told him. That was his story. Uh, so apparently it was not just uh, uh, the communists who hated him. <laughs> some other people did as well. You know, the people in uh, Harvard and others. But, you know, other, other communists who were not in our country at the time uh, Stalin hated John Wayne, uh, as Chuck Norris said, why? Because John Wayne was true blue American patriot who hated communism and made it pretty clear that he hated communism. And because of the power and the influence that stars on the stage and screen had Stalin considered Wayne to be a huge global threat to his rule and his spread of communism. Warhistoryonline.com explained in the late 1940s with many countries, uh, fearing the global spread of communism. Uh, this included the United States, where it was feared that people were secretly supportive of the USSR and its communist regime, and John Wayne was vocal about his dislike of communism. That was a rarity in Hollywood, as many in the ent entertainment industry had secret ties or sympathies. Uh, and I'll just inject here because the Franklin Project was actively doing that. It wasn't just, well, you know, people who are in Hollywood, they're just kind of drawn to this type of thing. No, they were actively recruited and influenced by the um, by the, that project. And, um, uh, so anyway, the, um, uh, Frankfurt school, <clears throat> uh, Stalin was a film buff. He loved American West Westerns and was outraged at the anti-communist rhetoric that Wayne expressed in the late 1940s. And, you know, he wasn't the only communist leader <clears throat> that liked, um, Westerns, uh, Brezhnev. as a matter of fact, look up uh, Chuck Connors on Wikipedia. I think they have a picture on his article on Wikipedia of when he met Brezhnev. And Chuck Connors was under the guy that was in The Rifleman. <clears throat> and that was Brezhnev's favorite movie. He, he loved that. And um, 
uh, a favorite TV series. And I think it was also a, a favorite of a Khrushchev. Uh, so they really liked the rifleman. And Brezhnev, uh, later in life, uh, came to the U.S. And there's a picture of him uh, standing there with um, uh, Chuck Connors towering over him. And Connors gave him a commemorative um, uh, firearm or something like that that somebody had arranged. I think it was um, uh, during the Nixon administration. Anyway, um, yeah, there you go. Look at that. <laughs> Can I get an idea of how big Chuck Connors was? I mean, somebody who played professionally basketball and baseball before he got into uh, the movies. But he was a huge guy. Anyway, so, you know, it, it's kind of funny that uh, everybody <clears> – <throat> Uh, not just uh, Chuck Norris and uh, kids like me uh, loved American Westerns. Even the communist dictators loved them, but they hated it when the heroes of the Westerns criticized them <laughs> directly. So um, anyway, military.com revealed how there was a uh, similar twisted passion for movies among dictators. I said, it seems like so many dictators just love movies. We all do, but absolute power takes it to a new level. Gaddafi had a channel set up just to play his favorite movie. Uh, his one favorite movie. <laughs> uh, Kim Jong-il kidnapped his favorite actors and actresses to star in North Korea's movies. And then, of course, the next natural step for these guys is to direct movies. Kim Jong-il made several films. Italian fascist Benito Mussolini pitched ideas to <laughs> Columbia Pictures. And even Saddam Hussein made a $30 million war epic. But Stalin was the Soviet Union's ultimate censor. Oh, yeah, he was very involved in um, the arts. Uh, he made uh, life miserable for Shostakovich. I've talked about that before. But according to uh, The Guardian, Russian filmmaker Sergei Gerasimov, who attended a peace conference in New York in 1949, affirmed Wayne's fervent anti-communist beliefs to Stalin. And though it seems a bit contradictory, according to the book, John Wayne, The Man Behind the Myth, uh, the author explained that Gerasimov apparently also told Wayne of the KGB plot against him the same year. Well, I don't necessarily see that as contradictory. I mean, you know, he, he brought, whether it's a film producer, whether it's a, a composer like Shostakovich, uh, Stalin made them heal. And they didn't like it. You know, they, they would know that uh, this was, you know, after they, yeah, yeah, John Wayne, does, oh, yeah, I'll get that guy. So then he's going to warn Wayne about it. That doesn't seem contradictory to me at all. But anyway, he says, one might think that with Stalin's reputation, record of brutality, even Wayne might have trembled in his boots and hid, but that was just the opposite. Stalin's disdain for Duke didn't bother him at all. In fact, Wayne was irritated and ready to confront Stalin's hatred and death threats. Uh, he knew the only way to beat a bully, says um, Chuck Norris, was to stand up to him not cower and run. So Stalin ordered an actual hit on the movie star. He dispatched two KGB agents or assassins in 1951. The FBI uncovered the plot from an unnamed Soviet source, which years later was verified by Stalin's successor, Nikita Khrushchev. When Khrushchev met John Wayne in 1958, he apologized for the killing contract and told him that was the decision of Stalin in his last mad years. And I rescinded the order, but not before they tried to take out the Duke. <laughs> uh, Military.com explained, obviously not one to let things like communist assassins uh, get him down. Um, he told the FBI uh, that he asked them to let him 
to let the two hitmen show up and he would deal with them himself. And so Wayne and his scriptwriter, Jimmy Grant, allegedly abducted the hitmen, some say with the additional help of a few stuntmen, <laughs> took them to the beach and staged a mock execution. Again, this sounds like something <laughs> out of the Corn Brothers movie, uh, Hail Caesar. Uh, and uh, so uh, they said, um, stage a mock, mock execution. No one knows exactly what happened after that. But uh, Wayne's friends said Soviet agents began to work for the FBI from that day on. <laughs> they feared retribution back in the USSR for failing, so they pled to remain and they became FBI informants. Ult Unfortunately, this was not the only Soviet assassination attempt. Uh, there were other plots to kill him, including an attempt in Mexico on the set of the film Hondo, uh, released in 53, that was led by a communist cell. There was also a sniper attack when Wayne visited Vietnam in 66, though it's difficult to say if it was a Soviet-based plot because it was a decade after the contract had been rescinded. Military.com concluded the entire time Wayne knew there was a price on his head. He refused the FBI's offer of federal protection and didn't even tell his family. He just moved into a house with a big wall around it. Once word got out, though, Hollywood stuntmen loyal to the Duke began to infiltrate the Communist Party cells around the country and expose plots against him. Wayne never spoke of the incidents publicly. It all reminds me, says Chuck, uh, uh, Chuck Norris, of the way the Duke rode through life and the movies, and we would be wise to do so as well. He said in True Grit, 1969, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. Well, that's John Wayne. And then on the other side, we have Norman Lear, right? <laughs> John Wayne, an icon to the right, and Norman Lear, an icon to the left. He is now turned 100 years old. And Al Mohler uh, wrote a little bit of an op-ed piece about it. And he said, um, television's boundary-smashing pioneer turns 100. He said, Norman Lear reached his 100th birthday this week, happily surrounded by his large family. And uh, he says, that's a remarkable achievement, but the real story here is not that Lear turned 100, but that he changed the world. How did he do it? Well, he did it with comedy, with comedy that had social agendas hooked into it. He ranks among the most significant forces of moral change in modern times, writes Moore. He might as well have been the most influential, he might be the most influential liberal figure in American life at a time when this country was turning left, hard left, on many moral issues. How did Lear drive American morality to the left? Well, he did so by creating the stories that made America laugh and sometimes cringe. In any event, Americans watched his TV shows by the millions, and they really couldn't avoid them. They were everywhere. Uh, he said, uh, and by the way, this guy came from Ukraine. Yeah, he was a Ukrainian Jew, is a... He was born in 1922 to a family that had uh, recently immigrated from Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Moeller said, evidently humor ran deep in his family when in 1983 he called his mother to tell her that he was the first class to be inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame. She responded, listen, if that's what they want, who am I to say? <laughs> Congratulations, but you know, well, are these people crazy? Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, he served his country in World War II as a decorated radio operator, as a tail gunner on a B-17 bomber over Europe. But um, then he got into television. When television was dominant, says Muller, Lear was dominant. And he had a big agenda. And he wanted to change America, and he did. 
Uh, one historian says, In the war for the American mind, entertainment programs have become political territory. But he says uh, that was not always the case. If you go back and look, just before Lear got into television and started making that the case, he said the most watched television program of the 1960s was the Beverly Hillbillies. And um, 1960s programming was dominated by two genres. Rural comedies, like the Beverly Hillbillies, the Andy Griffith Show, the Gomer Pyle Show, the Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, and oddball comedies that strictly avoided politics and often avoided reality as well. Things like Mr. Ed, My Mother the Car, you know, Talking Horses, Talking Cars, I Dream of Jeannie, My Favorite Martian, The Munsters, The Addams Family. And, and that really is in the same vein as, you know, I pointed out the Jetsons, you know, the, the supposed birthday to George Jetson was Sunday. And now it is absolutely unthinkable to people looking back that it was simply just entertainment. It was just comedy. We don't do just entertainment. We don't do just comedy anymore. And that's really kind of the legacy of Norman Lear. You know, uh, the Jetsons didn't have a social agenda uh, any more than the Flintstones did. But even when you have somebody working for a supposedly conservative paper, the New York Post, uh, they can't review it without saying that uh, the Jetsons was patriarchal. Now, that's, that's, they can't escape the lens of um, critical race theory and the rest of the stuff, even in a conservative paper. That has so engrossed uh, the educational programs and the rest of this that they can't see it just as entertainment, which is what it was at the time. Uh, now everything is beating you over the head with an agenda. But Norman Lear was the first one to do it. And things like um, All in the Family with Archie Bunker. You know, he designed Archie Bunker was going to be this uh, straw man of conservatives that they were going to beat up. And yet everybody identified with Archie Bunker and they hated Meathead, <laughs> son-in-law. And Reiner is still out there doing Meathead because just like John Wayne, Reiner is not an actor. He's a persona. You know, he's, he's doing his persona as Meathead, and he's still doing it. He's just not in front of the camera, fortunately. Uh, driven by his liberal passions and a determination to force political change through television, Lear built a progressive empire, eventually championing causes that ranged from abortion to sexual liberation, feminism, and the welfare state. Norman Lear was also insistent upon pushing boundaries in terms of what broadcast standards would allow and what the public would accept. In one famous episode, he deliberately poked at both standards and conventions by using the noise of a loud flushing toilet on All in the Family before his character Archie Bunker would enter the room. It was so shocking that critics named it the flush heard round the world, but it would be heard again and again. Though at one time, Lear had several leading programs, all in the Family, which debuted in 71, was the most important weapon of mass cultural influence that he wielded. Um, it, according to, uh, uh, based on a, a winning British comedy, All in the Family became one of the most iconic cultural forces of its time. It broke barrier after barrier, touching explosive issue after issue with a comedic twist that was irresistible. Archie Bunker became Lear's anti-hero, the white conservative male, unwilling to go along with the cultural revolution. And again, everybody I knew thought he was a hero. <laughs> but again, that's the, the world that I lived in. His wife, Edith's cousin, Maude, became a heroine. 
she would later become the title character in a spinoff series that would predictably feature Maude deciding to have an abortion. So, uh, finally, um, you know, what uh, Moeller is saying about it, he says in um, uh, a book... Uh, that looks at the insight that uh, Lear was not just a man of the left. He was a major figure of the religious left, and this is why Al Mohler is talking about it. Uh, While minimizing any personal religious beliefs, Lear staunchly opposed conservative Christian influence in the public square, and he saw evangelicals on the right as a threat to his liberal vision for America. He founded the activist group known as People for the American Way, and he forged an alliance with religious liberals. He was a champion of the so-called new morality, and he used the powerful medium of television to change American hearts and minds. What one writer calls Lear's liberal faith, quote-unquote, was translated into stories that captured the American mind, and powerfully so. Lear is now 100 years old, and whether today's America knows it or not, he changed America and drove a liberal revolution in morality. And he is influencing everybody today. You know, we should never underestimate the influence that any of us have in terms of changing the world around us. Each of us has that capability of doing it. But when we look at the deliberate agenda to change the world, that's what we're going to be looking at when we come back after this break. Stay with us. We will be right back. Deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Hear news now at APSRadioNews.com or get the APS Radio app and never miss another story. All right, let's talk about the uh, central MacGuffin that is um, being pointed at us right now or being used to motivate us. Uh, Babylon B has uh, a feature here, 10 Undeniable Proofs that climate change is happening. Number one, it is hot. Number two, it is cold. (laughs) Number three, it is raining. Number four, it is not raining. Number five, it is a pleasant day. Uh, Number six, it is not a pleasant day. Number seven, it's snowing. Number eight, it is not snowing. Number nine, it is summer. Number 10, it is winter. (laughs) <laughs> the climate is changing. I mean, this is, uh, that perfectly encapsulates it. No matter what, it'll be climate change. Cold, dry, wet, warm, it doesn't matter. It's climate change. And then they finish that list with, uh, was your mind changed? Well, we hope so. Uh, now give the government hundreds of billions of dollars to solve this problem as they have done such a great job with everything else. You know, when we... <laughs> Look at the scientific American. They're actually trying to sell the idea that human pee is a problem. It's a problem pollutant in the world. And this is tied together with the nitrogen nonsense. 
That's what we should call it, the nitrogen nonsense. It's using going to be used to uh, take away our food and fuel, used to create a worldwide famine. The nitrogen nonsense. And seriously, they are focused on nitrous oxide. What is nitrous oxide? It's laughing gas. Uh, la laughing gas. We should laugh these people off of their world stage. But instead, everybody's like, "Oh, how do we how do we handle this?" I don't know. Well, you laugh at them, and you refuse, and you better start working with uh, state and local government to protect farms in your area. These people are going to starve us. Scientific American says. Eating too much protein makes pee a problem pollutant in the U.S. Protein-packed diets are adding excess nitrogen into the environment through urine, rivaling pollution from agricultural fertilizer. Uh, yeah, if they get their way, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> Scientific American says, uh, in the U.S., people eat more protein than they need to. Oh, see, Scientific American, they are so smart. They know how much protein you should have. And they will decide that for you. I remember back in the 1980s when we were doing commercials in our kitchen for the Libertarian Party to be run on cable. And, uh, and we were talking at the time. We didn't put that in the commercial. But, you know, you had these um, uh, campaigns being done by NPR and others saying everybody's just eating too much sugar. And they were right. People were eating too much sugar, but they were getting increasingly strident. We said, how long is it going to be before they send the sugar police into your kitchen? And, you know, we were halfway kidding about that. But, of course, that doesn't even sound funny anymore. You can imagine that there would be somebody sent into your kitchen to examine the sugar or even more ludicrous, the amount of protein, the amount of protein that you are consuming. And they don't even have to do that. They'll just shut you off and make sure that, oh, I'm sorry, you've had too much protein uh, that you bought this month. I'm not going to let you buy that at the grocery store with your uh, central bank digital currency type of thing. They'll be keeping a monitor of everything that you consume. Uh, this excess, says Scientific American, this excess protein does pose a problem for the country's waterways. The nation's wastewater is laden with leftovers from protein digestion. Nitrogen compounds that can feed toxic algal blooms and pollute the air and the drinking water. You know what they're not worried about? They're not worried about all the pharmaceuticals that people eliminate into the sewage. Uh, the pharmaceuticals that are altering the behaviors and, the, and, and even the fish in the downstream of that, the uh, pharmaceuticals that are not being taken out in the water treatment facilities, but they're recycling and they're increasing in intensity. They're not worried about any of that. No, they're worried about protein. And they're worried about protein and nitrogen. They're not worried about the pharmaceuticals, not at all. Not worried about the, uh, uh, the um, fluoride either. So they say this is an ecological impact known as the nitrogen cascade. So they have to create a term like that to scare you. Under certain conditions, and in the presence of particular microbes, urea can break down into the form gases and form gases of oxidized nitrogen. Be afraid. Be very afraid. These gases reach the atmosphere, where nitrous oxide, laughing gas, can contribute to warming via the greenhouse effect. And then nitrogen oxides can cause acid rain. 
Well, to paraphrase Josie Wales, don't piss down my back and tell me that it's acid rain. I mean, this is absolute nonsense. We know exactly where these people are going. Uh, we know the, the lies and the, the fear and the panic. And it's always the same thing. They're coming for it's just today's MacGuffin to steal what you've got and to enslave you. So they had an oceanographer at the University of Maryland suggesting that consumers could switch to a demetarian diet. Oh, what is that? Well, it's an approach that focuses on reducing consumption of meat and dairy. Uh, many people think that we, all, that we need to switch to becoming vegetarians. Well, obviously, that's not practical. Well, why not? I mean, you can force people to do anything, right? Don't you have the power to force anything? You have the levers of information. Uh, you can lie to people and you can shut down the truth. You could make everybody be vegetarian. Well, they just want to do it. It has to be done from the inside, but it also has to be done gradually. Remember what Fauci said? They'll get you there. They'll get you to vegetarian, whether you like it or not. And so they said, well, it's, it's not practical, at least not this time. Uh, that's not something that's going to ever really happen. But rather than cutting out any foods entirely, she suggested that consumers could switch to a demitarian diet. In other words, it's kind of halfway there. Uh, an approach that focuses on reducing the consumption of meat and dairy, which currently make up about two-thirds of the protein eaten in the U.S. She said, enjoy your steak, enjoy your burger, but go modest on your meat consumption in your following meal. Now, this is not a suggestion. They want to make meat rare, and I don't mean the way they're cooking it. Uh, they, they don't want you to have it. They want it to be unavailable, and they want it to be expensive, and they're going to force that on you. We all know that, right? We all know what the agenda is. I think everybody is starting to see this. And I think um, as they move to food and water, I think that's going to get a lot of people's attention. This is why as Davos and the UN are talking about their partnership, they're also, as they're making more and more of it public, as if we needed for them to do that. I mean, they've got their, each of them has an agenda and they have a time frame. And guess what? The agenda and the time frame is exactly the same. It's like they conspired together to create it. It's like they breathed together in order to create this agenda because they did. They point out uh, in the article here, Singapore's water service is now launching a craft beer made primarily out of wastewater. They call it New Brew. <laughs> made out of a liquid that is recycled from sewage, filtered, and then pumped into Singapore's water supply. This 2020 version, 2022 version of New Brew will be, and they describe it as a, quote, tropical blonde ale with smooth, toasted, honey-like aftertaste. Well, it sounds like the way people drink their urine describe it, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Democrats are now have a spending bill imposing a methane tax to fund environmental justice programs because, you know, you can't have any waste from the other end either. That won't be taxed. Everything about you is going to kill the environment. You are the pollution. And I've said this for the longest time. I took our sons in uh, the spring of uh, 2001 in the UK, went to the Children's Museum, let them blow off some steam, and I'm watching the propaganda that is playing in the background. All these kids are playing. They've got this loop running to propagandize them. And it was all about Gaia theory. The Earth, the Mother Earth, is this amazing piece of uh, uh, sentient even 
a living organism that just happened by random chance. And we don't want to spoil that. But humans are like a virus to this living organism. Mother Earth, Gaia, you know, the, named after the uh, Greek goddess Mother Earth. And uh, so, so you, humans are a, a virus. Well, you know what you do with viruses, don't you? Well, you try to eradicate them. And that's what they were trying. That's what they're trying to do us. Uh, Alexander, thank you very much. I appreciate the tip on Rockfin. Thank you. Um, so, uh, the Democrats have a new bill to now go after methane as well, and they're talking about environmental justice programs. And you should be very, excuse me, very afraid of this because we're talking about a budget, as I mentioned before, that is as big as the U.S. military budget, simply to force their climate change agenda on you, to bribe people into this. Nobody pays any attention anymore to a bill that's not a, more than a trillion dollars. That's become our new normal, our new reset. So when they come up with something that is three quarters of a trillion dollars, oh, it's only $734 billion. Who cares? Nothing, right? No, it's as big as the military budget. Think of it that way. Hundreds of billions of dollars to fund their climate war against us. And this is going to be funding the eradication of our food, the eradication of our energy and our fuel, the eradication of our power grid. $60 billion on protecting low-income areas. Direct pay options to support domestic green energy manufacturers over the next five years. I mean, this is going to be the same way that you get the wasteful Pentagon spending and everything, you know, a $600 toilet seat or whatever. This is going to be now done with all the climate stuff. Uh, $60 billion in climate reparations. Climate reparations in the name of equity. It's just going to be passing out, a lot of it's going to be passing out money to their friends, who guess what? They're going to become rabid climate cheerleaders of this agenda. Anyone who drinks milk or eats meat will now be paying reparations. Will the $60 billion actually help to solve racism? Asked the uh, uh, U.S. Senate senior staff a member on the Environment and Public Works Committee. So the bill is going to be, I was saying, 734, $739, uh, $739 billion total. And again, remember that um, the, uh, the overall um, U.S. defense budget was $768 billion, and that was with $25 billion that was added at the last minute by the Democrats. Why did they do that at the last minute? Well, you know, there's probably some pork barrel projects in there. But also, if you were to take that away, that would take the, without that $25 billion that was added, and maybe this is the reason it was added. Maybe the Democrats didn't want to have a climate change bill that was the same size as the entire defense budget. Without that $25 billion, it would have been, and originally was, $743 billion proposed for the 2022 Pentagon budget. All defense spending. And this climate spending is $739 billion. $739 billion versus $743 billion. They're virtually identical in size. There'll be tax credits for electric vehicles, uh, $4,000 for used ones, $7,500 for new vehicles. Uh, they will 
phase out the tax breaks uh, for <clears throat> individuals and married couples, uh, but uh, those with incomes up to $300,000 would be eligible for write-offs for new electric vehicles. See, they're going to use all of this spending, all this money, they're going to use the power of the purse to rob us of everything. You're thinking that you're going to get a subsidy here and you're going to get a subsidy there, but they're using this massive amount of government spending to actually force their green agenda, their climate MacGuffin on us to take everything we have, including our food and our mobility. That's what the outcome of this is going to be. I mean, it's pretty amazing how brilliant they are. Most Americans are just going to be looking at the Trojan horses. And they aren't going to see what's inside of it. They're not going to see what is coming next and how they're going to be. You're going to be bribed into slavery. This whole thing is a, a, a climate change Trojan horse. Now you have um, this article here from uh, Spiked Online. The writer is Brendan O'Neill. And he's talking about Justin Trudeau and the dangers of eco-posturing. Posturing. Now, he's right in terms of everything that he says about the deleterious effects of what Trudeau wants to do. And he also does see that it is aligned up with an agenda, you know, that is Canada is aligned with the agendas that have been pushed in Sri Lanka and the Netherlands. Also, it's happening in Ireland and other places where they're trying to shut down the farms. But he thinks it's posturing. He doesn't think that it's a conspiracy, or at least he's afraid to say that it is a conspiracy. Because, you know, hey, if you say it's a conspiracy, that's tantamount to being, uh, you know, that, that's such an embarrassing thing to be labeled as a conspiracy theorist. Well, I take it as a badge of honor now, after what these people have done. As a matter of fact, I've talked about how the UN has united with the World Economic Forum. Uh, what do we call this new beast here? Uh, because, again, it is the, as I've said before, the UN creates the agenda. It starts to build a consensus with politicians. It brings the politicians to the table. But you need to have an executive branch that is going to have the energy to implement what they have decided. If they're going to declare war on us, you've got to have somebody who's actually going to prosecute the war. And they need to have money, too. So what the World Economic Forum provides for these people, these Marxists at the UN, what they provide for them, is um, the executive administration, the energy to get this done, and also they bring to the table the money. This is the, uh, the deal that they make with these people. They don't have the ability to tax us, and so what they do is they uh, give the billionaires a stake in the new economy, and these stakeholders are going to be funding it for their place in the new world order. And so, I don't know, you know, maybe we call this thing... Um, Instead of uh, the UN World Economic uh, Forum, maybe we call it the uh, Undo the World Eco-Fascists, don't you think? Because it's not really about economics, or it is, but it's, they say it's about the environment. Okay, so call them eco-fascists because they are. And they're trying to undo the world and then remake it in their dystopian society. So Trudeau, he says, has joined the mad war on farmers. He did it a long, long time ago. He says such a severe reduction in nitrogen use in Canada would be disastrous for the planet. It would mean that Canadian farmers are being pressured to use less fertilizer. It would mean less food, not only for the people of Canada, but for people around the world. 
saving the planet by starving human beings. Hey, Lydra. Yeah, that's exactly what this is about. So he says it's going to be the elite's crusade. He has joined the elite's crusade against modern farming. As a result of global lockdowns and the war in Ukraine, we now have some pretty serious food shortages, says the writer. Uh, he says a report published by the UN last month said that around 180 million people are dealing with a food crisis in 2022. So what are they doing about it? Well, they don't want to let a crisis go to waste, right? So they're doubling down on this. He says they're making it harder for farmers to grow crops, to make food. That's what they're doing about it. He says this is worse than fiddling while Rome burns. It's flicking matches while Rome burns. And that's exactly what I've been saying. I've been calling Biden Nero. So we agree on most of this. He says in the Netherlands... The government is planning on slashing the use of nitrogen compounds by 50% by 2030. In Ireland, farming will need to be cut by 22 to 30% if Ireland is to, quote-unquote, achieve its climate goals, unquote. Who cares? This is why we have to destroy the foundation, right? You can't argue about this and say, well, we are some of the least polluting people, and we've got some ideas about how we can do less pollution. No, you attack them directly. You point out that they've got an agenda to take our food. You point out that these things that they're trying to panic everybody about are not a real threat. You're going to take a lot of heat from that. Because just like we saw with the COVID pandemic, we say, I'm sorry, but you're cooking the books on these statistics. This is not a pandemic. And, and even if it were, your approach doesn't make any sense. You have to do it on that basis. And then you also have to look at it just like we did with Fauci. They say, look at this guy's history. Look at what he's been doing uh, for the last, um, uh, since 1986. Okay? And uh, look at what they've been practicing for the last 20 years. They're germ games. Do you understand what these people are doing? They planned for this. They've got an agenda. You know, this is, this is a big scam that they're rolling out on us. But even if their claims are true, and you can talk about how their claims are true. Even if their claims are true, this isn't going to help. It's the same way that we talk about the Paris Climate Accord. Say, uh, many of the people who believe that there is man-made climate change coming because of the smoke coming out of your SUV uh, or out of the uh, power plants, the power facilities, will say, well, why are you giving China and India a pass on this for decades? That doesn't make any sense. You're allowing them to continue to add um, power plants and you don't have any controls on the amount of emissions? Coming out of those power plants, how can you justify that? This is a global problem, say the people who really believe all of this stuff. And that's the way that we can attack this. Anyway, um, so who is going to make food for the Irish people when you take away the, the uh, farm industry in Ireland, cost them 4 billion euros, cost them 58,000 job losses a year, because this is going to be done iteratively. This massive disruption is happening right now based on a false MacGuffin, a false emergency. You have to act now. You can't wait. Uh, it, it's so important. You've got to sign the bottom line right now. Uh, doesn't, I would say, by the way, isn't it a clue to people that when all of these people have the common deadline, as I said earlier in the program, whether it's 2030, we got to get this thing done, or whether it is, as they've done over and over again, well, you know, in two months, we're going to add this new requirement for vaccines or, 
travel or this. They always do that, and it's out in the future. It's not response to an emergency. They all agree on what needs to be done, and they all agree on the exact timeline. Does that not tell you that it is a conspiracy when they've got a deadline like that? And in, in this case, it just as it was with COVID, it literally is a deadline. It is a plot to kill people by a time certain. Like many other governments in the West, the Trudeau regime is beholden to the cult of net zero. It is estimated that a 30% that a 30 cut in nitrogen emissions will translate into a loss of $400 million for Canada's wheat farmers, up to $441 million for its canola farmers. Canada exports a huge amount of food around the world. As one concerned observer says, we cannot feed the growing world population with a reduction in fertilizer. Uh, that's the plan, by the way. He doesn't say that, but that is the plan. They know that. We know that. Why aren't we opposing them on their plan? They don't plan on you being able to feed yourself, right? So they, they don't plan on feeding you. So you better be planning on learning how to feed yourself and your community. But he says, let's be frank about what's happening here. He said, food production, people's very ability to sustain themselves is potentially being sacrificed to the feel-good eco-posturing of Western elites, the narcissistic glow that Trudeau and others feel as they puff themselves up as carbon-cutting, nitrogen-slashing saviors of the planet apparently takes precedent over the right of Canadian people and people around the world to enjoy access to good, relatively cheap food. This is how lethal virtue signaling can be. And I just have to say to Brendan O'Neill, how can you miss the plot? You seriously think that this is about their ego? You seriously think that this is just virtue signaling? These people are playing for keeps. You better wake up. This is a conspiracy. You better call it what it is. You better talk about the agenda that they have laid out. They've laid out all the details. They've given you the time frame. Why are you saying these people are just egotistical maniacs? I mean, that's just one step away from saying, well, they meant well. They mean to kill us and enslave the people who survive. That's what this is about. It's about nothing other than that. How many times do they have to roll out one MacGuffin in one area after the other until you realize it's not virtue signaling by liberals? This is a plan. It's virtue signaling by some of the people at the bottom level. But by the people at the top level, this is a plan. And the conservatives better get on with this. They better understand what is going on. Uh, this is not a bunch of people who don't know what's happening. You better figure out what's happening. You better figure out how you're going to take care of yourself and build a resistance to it locally. He says this all speaks to an elite that has seriously lost his way. No, pal, you've lost the plot. You've lost the agenda. They're telling you the agenda. They're telling you the time frame. Don't you believe them? I mean, they're not out there playing games. Come on. He said, they're now completely disconnected from matters of necessity and production. No, you're disconnected, and they're disconnecting you from things that you have to have and things that you need to produce. They're taking care of themselves. You better figure that out. I mean, the conservative press is disconnected. And, and again, one of the reasons that this is happening is that they are so intimidated. They don't want to be called a conspiracy theorist. I mean, this guy, he's got a reputation, right? Uh, Brendan O'Neill. 
He's a chief political writer for Spiked. I mean, would he want to be identified by the pejorative, a conspiracy theorist? These people who are hatching these conspiracies, these detailed agendas and plans with dates and steps, the iterative process, how they're going to disrupt our society, how they're going to enslave and kill us iteratively, these people have made have weaponized the term conspiracy theorist. So the people are afraid to say, you know, this is a plan. By, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, folks, it's not a theory, but it is a conspiracy. He goes on to say, it's high time we reclaim the moral high ground from these eco-elites who are waging war on modern farming. I agree. Nitrogen-based fertilizer is not a bad thing. On the contrary, it transformed the fortunes of humankind, helping to reduce hunger and to lift people out of poverty. Synthetic nitrogen fertilizer was central to the Green Revolution of the 1960s. It helped to boost global agricultural production. It is thanks to this chemical, so hated by the green elites, that countries like India, Pakistan, which had been on the verge of famine, could become self-sufficient in wheat production. It isn't nitrogen-using farmers who are behaving immorally. It's the out-of-touch elites. They're not out of touch. These dangerous people are clearly more concerned with virtuous preening than they are with helping to alleviate the global food shortage. Let me just say this again. Uh, he's got a podcast. He's a chief political writer uh, for Spiked. He's right about defending the fertilizer and defending the freedom and defending the food and everything. But if you are shooting at the top of a fort, you're not going to bring it down. You got to shoot at the foundation. And if you don't attack them on the foundational lies, people are going to say, well, yeah, I know nitrogen has been a good thing, but it's just out of hand. And at this scale, it's just going to destroy the planet and we're all going to die. So we're going to have to shut down our food supply. That's good. If you don't attack the foundational lies, you're going to lose. It's just that simple. Don't try to just simply defend the fact that we need to have food and we got to have fertilizer in order to have food. That ain't going to work. You've got to attack the foundational lie that is fueling the fear. Nothing else will work. I mean, you've got the Rockefeller Foundation, the Reset the Table, Transform the U.S. Food System. That's what they're talking about. You have the World Economic Forum, the, the uh, world's eco-fascists, uh, talking about their food innovation hubs. Uh, it is, uh, all of this stuff is closely tied to the UN's Agenda 2030, says Alex Newman, the Epic Times, another conservative writer who can't quite go there. Look, it's very similar, uh, but, uh, and it's, you know, it's funny, you know, the UN has a very similar agenda to the World Economic Forum, but, uh, well, you know, it is the same thing, you know, so you have to understand they, they do a good job of pointing out the Marxist foundation, again, the Epic Times, they are, you know, uh, adamantly against the Chinese communists. You had a lot of people who were part of the um, Falun Gong uh, that helped to found that uh, news organization. And so they absolutely hate the Chinese communists, and rightfully so. And so they always point out the Chinese communist input into this. And it is absolute communism, as I read the other day, when the UN. Uh, had their conference on uh, human settlements, 
They said things like land cannot be treated as an ordinary asset controlled by individuals. That's communism. Private land ownership is a principal instrument of accumulation, concentration of wealth, and contributes to social injustice. That is communism. That is fundamental premise of communism. You can't have private land ownership. Public control of land use is therefore indispensable for social justice. That is communism, and they're right about that. So how does that apply? Well, it doesn't just apply to farmland, of course. The World Economic Forum is saying we've got to reduce private vehicles by eliminating ownership. This is coming from Fox. Even Fox understands that, but don't call it a conspiracy. None dare call it conspiracy. See, they don't want to have private vehicles for the same reason they don't want to have private land. They have to have public control of everything because they're communists. They're Marxists. They're neo-Marxists. Uh, no assets controlled by individuals. We're going to have public control of cars via the stakeholders. Well, um, it didn't take them long, did it, to admit that you're not going to be able to have an electric vehicle either. I've been saying for the longest time, and now the World Economic Forum is admitting it. Why? Because they have to accelerate the agenda, the implementation of the agenda, because people are starting to catch on. Uh, we may be slow. Hopefully, we're not going to be too slow to catch on to this. But I've been saying for the longest time, this isn't even about internal combustion engines versus electric vehicles. This is about controlling all private vehicles. The electric vehicles are just a more convenient way for them to do that. Get rid of the existing vehicles, transition people over to things that are, have a limited range, that are tied to a centralized grid, which they also can control and cut off, and then are loaded with electronics that they can then manipulate to further control it. And then they'll rent it to you by the ride. So what are they saying? Well, we got to reduce ownership of private vehicles, says the um, world eco-fascist in uh, Davos. They said, this is a quote, this transition from fossil fuels to renewables will need a large supply of critical metals such as cobalt, lithium, nickel, to name a few. Shortages of these critical minerals could raise the costs of clean energy technologies. And so, therefore, we have to have ride sharing. They said just the, these mineral requirements that we're going to have, even though we're still having trouble supplying them for today's level of electric vehicles and devices and the rest of this stuff, they're going to grow by more than 500% by 2050. That is teeny tiny. If you're going to switch everybody over to electric vehicles, it's going to go much bigger than that. But they're not planning on any electricity for the grid. And as I pointed out, they don't have the supply of materials to make the electric batteries for all of this stuff. And so what they're saying is we don't, we can't have, everybody can't have a car. Everybody can't have meat. Everybody can't have protein. We will have the meat and the protein in the cars. You won't. More sharing can reduce ownership of idle equipment and material usage. And they point out the fact that the average vehicle in England is only driven 4% of the time. And so why do you need a car? Well, you don't. And furthermore, you don't need to be able to drive, and you don't need to even be able to drive an 18-wheeler. When you look at what is happening in California to the truckers with AB5, and then when you look at what is being rapidly pushed in, by the way, these self-driving trucks, one of them that just had an accident, I mean, that's something you should be very concerned about. Think about this, you know, uh, a, an 18-wheeler, 80,000 pounds under software control, reacting to the environment around it. Uh, what just happened? We had a self-driving truck uh, drawing attention to the slack 
safety standards at a company called Too Simple, T-U Simple. Uh, this is Wall Street Journal talking about this. On April the 6th, an autonomously driven truck fitted with technology by Too Simple suddenly veered left and cut across the I-10 highway in Tucson, Arizona and slammed into a concrete barrier. An 80,000-pound uh, 18-wheeler, and uh, you are the lab rats that they're doing public experiments on. I think it's also, they don't mention this anywhere in the Wall Street Journal, but these trucks that they're practicing their um, autonomous driving on, they don't have any of them that are running off of batteries. That isn't anywhere on the horizon. But the battery stuff and electric stuff was put out there by Elon Musk, and it's tied together in people's minds. And, uh, but they will be putting these diesel trucks under software control. They said Too Simple has long been a leader among robot truck developers. Launched in 2015, it won the backing of partners including UPS, freight giant U.S. Express Enterprises, and Volkswagen. The April incident involved a rig with a Too Simple driver and an engineer aboard, and the company has repeatedly blamed the accident on human error. Well, guess what? Programmers are human. Is it your program and your software that's in error, or is it somebody that's in the cab? These computers are not creating themselves. So, yeah, human error can be a lot of different things. An internal too simple report that was viewed by the Wall Street Journal said the semi-tractor truck abruptly veered left because a person in the cab hadn't properly rebooted the autonomous driving system before engaging it, causing it to execute an outdated command. But researchers at Carnegie Mellon University said the autonomous driving system that turned the wheel, uh, turned the wheel, and they blamed the entire incident uh, to blame the entire incident on human error is misleading. For example, they said, and here's three programming errors uh, that they pointed out from Carnegie Mellon. They said, number one, a person who sits in a truck to backstop the artificial intelligence should never be able to engage a self-driving system that isn't properly functioning. Number one. Number two, the truck also shouldn't respond to commands that are even a couple of hundredths of a second old. This one was a command that it responded to that was two and a half minutes old. When it came up, they didn't properly reboot it, and it saw a command that was sitting there two and a half minutes ago. Veer left and right across the interstate and into a concrete barrier, fortunately not hurting anybody. And then third, the system should never permit an autonomously driven truck to turn so sharply while traveling at 65 miles an hour. Had the thing not flip over? This information shows that the testing that they're doing on public roads is highly unsafe, said a professor at Carnegie Mellon. But just like the vaccines, they will test it on the public because they see you as nothing other than a rat lab rat. And you have to understand that um, they're going to, they think, that they're going to be putting out the trucks as autonomous vehicles even before cars are. Because they said, well, you know, the trucks are going to be on the interstate. And so, uh, you know, um, that's a simpler situation. Is it? When you make a hard left turn at 65 miles an hour? Good thing it wasn't a busy interstate or you had a lot of people who were dead. Um, look, the bottom line of all this, you can see where this is headed with what is happening with California's AB5 law. 
That law in California is set up to kill independent operators, small businessmen, just like Trump's lockdown was set up to kill small business and Main Street. They want the big companies to be the sole owners of everything, the sole stakeholders of everything. So they control everything in our life. And you've got a public-private partnership. You've got people like Gavin Newsom and the California legislature shutting down small businesses so that the stakeholders can control everything. That's it for the broadcast. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Pass to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. thedavidnightshow.com.